The final straw came after months of complaining, when I met my friend Mindy for a drink after a week of peak bullshit. I had just been asked to color-coordinate a mind map to show the nice-to-haves, must-haves, and would-like-to-have in futures. No, I have no idea what that means either. Mindy was working on a similarly bullshit project, writing branded content for the pages of a company newspaper nobody reads. She ranted at me, and I ranted at her. I made a long, impassioned speech that ended with me shouting, I cannot wait for the sea levels to rise and the apocalypse to come because I would rather be out hunting fish and cannibals with a spear I'd fashioned out of a fucking pole than doing this fucking bollocks. We both laughed for a long time, and then I started crying. I quit the next day. That is one massive benefit of having done all manner of weird menial jobs through university. You can almost always find work quickly. So yes, I am the queen crystal of Generation Snowflake, melting in the heat of a pleasantly air-conditioned office, but good lord, the working world is crap. From thinking a crap office job was hardly the end of the world, Rachel was finally forced to the conclusion that the end of the world would, in fact, be preferable. There is a happy ending to this one, at least temporarily. Rachel reports she was soon after able to find work for a program teaching remedial math to poor children. It is everything her insurance job is not, and pays well enough that she should be able to afford grad school. On the misery of knowing that one is doing harm... There is one other slightly different form of social suffering that ought to be acknowledged. The misery of having to pretend you're providing some kind of benefit to humanity when you know the exact opposite is in fact the case. For obvious reasons, this is most common among social service providers who work for government or non-governmental organizations, NGOs. Most are engaged in box-ticking rituals, at least to a certain degree, but many are aware that what they're doing is worse than useless. They're harming the people they're supposedly there to help. Sheehy is now an artist, but she was once a community therapist in New York City. Sheehy. I used to work as a therapist in a community mental health center in the Bronx in the 1990s and 2000s. I have a social work degree. My clients ended up either being mandated to treatment after being incarcerated for minor stuff, Clinton's crime bill, lost their jobs and apartments after being jailed, or just needed to prove to welfare-to-work or social security offices that they need SSI, supplemental security income, or other food-slash-rent subsidies because they were mentally ill. Some were indeed severely mentally ill, but many others were just extremely poor people who were constantly being harassed by the police. Their living conditions would make anyone mentally ill. My job was to do therapy to essentially tell them it was their own fault and their responsibility to make their lives better. And if they attended the program daily so the company could bill their Medicaid, staff would copy their medical records to send to the Social Security office so they could be reviewed for disability payments. The more paperwork in their charts, the better their chances. I had groups to run like anger management, coping skills. They were so insulting and irrelevant. How do you cope with lack of decent food or control your rage toward the police when they abuse you? 
My job was useless and harmful. So many NGOs profit from the misery created by inequality. I made a very poor living doing what I did, but it still pains me deeply that I was a poverty pimp. It is interesting and important to note that many of the petty officials who do absurd and terrible things in the name of paperwork are keenly aware of what they are doing and of the human damage that is likely to result, even if they usually feel they must remain stone-faced when dealing with the public. Some rationalize it, a few take sadistic pleasure, but any victim of the system who has ever asked herself, how can such people live with themselves, might take some comfort in the fact that, in many cases, they can't. Mina's job for a local government council in an English town sometimes referred to as Little Skid Row by the Sea was represented to her, when she took it, as working with the homeless. She found this was true, in a sense. Mina My job was not to place, to advise, or help homeless people in any way. Instead, I had to try to collect their paperwork, proof of ID, national insurance number, proof of income, etc., so that the temporary homeless unit could claim back housing benefit. They had three days to provide it. If they couldn't or wouldn't provide the necessary paperwork, I had to ask their caseworkers to kick them out of their temporary accommodations. Obviously, homeless people with drug addictions tend to have difficulties providing two proofs of income, among many other things. But so do 15-year-olds whose parents have abandoned them and veterans with PTSD and women fleeing domestic violence. So ultimately, Mina explains, her role was to threaten to make formerly homeless people homeless again, all so that one department could claim a cash transfer from another. What was it like? Soul-destroying. After six months, she couldn't take it and gave up on government service entirely. Mina quit. Beatrice, who worked for a different local authority, also couldn't take it after witnessing colleagues laughing over letters sent to pensioners that contained intentional errors designed to confuse the recipients so as to allow the council to falsely bill them for late payment. Only a handful of her co-workers, she said, took an active pleasure in defrauding the public they were hired to serve, but it cast a terrible pall upon an otherwise easygoing and friendly office environment. She tried to complain to higher-ups. Surely this isn't right. But they looked at her as if she were crazy. So Beatrice took her first opportunity to find another job. George, who worked for ATOS, a French firm hired by the British government to knock as many citizens as possible from the disability roles, in the years following, more than 2,000 were discovered to have died not long after having been found fit to work. Soldiers on. He reports that everyone who works for the company does understand what's going on and hates ATOS with a quiet desperation. In other cases, government workers are convinced that they are the only ones in their office who figured out how useless or destructive the work they're doing is. Though, when asked if they have ever presented their views to colleagues directly, most invariably say they haven't, leaving open the possibility that their co-workers are equally convinced they are the only ones who know what's really going on. Mark Personally, I often used to wish I wasn't aware that my job was bullshit. Kind of like how Neo in the Matrix movies may sometimes have wished he hadn't taken the red pill. I despair, and still do, that I'm working in the public sector to help people 
but I rarely, if ever, help anyone. I also feel a sense of guilt that I'm paid by taxpayers to do this. In all this, we are moving into somewhat different territory. Much of what happens in such offices is simply pointless, but there is an added dimension of guilt and terror when it comes to knowing you are involved in actively hurting others. Guilt, for obvious reasons. Terror, because in such environments, dark rumors will always tend to circulate about what is likely to happen to whistleblowers. But on a day-to-day -day basis, all this simply deepens the texture and quality of the misery attendant on such jobs. Coda On the effects of bullshit jobs on human creativity and on why attempts to assert oneself creatively or politically against pointless employment might be considered a form of spiritual warfare. Let me conclude by returning to the theme of spiritual violence. It's hard to imagine anything more soul-destroying than, as Mina put it, being forced to commit acts of arbitrary bureaucratic cruelty against one's will, to become the face of the machine that one despises, to become a monster. It has not escaped my notice, for example, that the most frightening monsters in popular fiction do not simply threaten to rend or torture or kill you, but to turn you into a monster yourself. Think here of vampires, zombies, werewolves. They terrify because they menace not just your body, but also your soul. This is presumably why adolescents in particular are drawn to them. Adolescence is precisely when most of us are first confronted with the challenge of how not to become the monsters we despise. Useless or insidious jobs that involve pretenses to public service are perhaps the worst, but almost all of the jobs mentioned in this chapter can be considered soul-destroying in different ways. Bullshit jobs regularly induce feelings of hopelessness, depression, and self-loathing. They are forms of spiritual violence directed at the essence of what it means to be a human being. If what I have argued in the last chapter, that the integrity of the human psyche, even human physical integrity, insofar as these two can ever be entirely distinguished, is caught up in relations with others, and the sense of one's capacity to affect the world, then such jobs could hardly be anything other than spiritual violence. This is not to say, however, that the soul has no means for resistance. It might be well to conclude this chapter by taking note of the resulting spiritual warfare and document some of the ways workers keep themselves sane by involving themselves in other projects. Call it, if you like, guerrilla purpose. Robin, the temp who fixed his screen to look like he was programming when, in fact, he was surfing the web, used that time to perform free editorial work for a number of Wikipedia pages he monitored, including, apparently mine, and to help maintain an alternative currency initiative. Others start businesses, write film scripts and novels, or secretly run sexy maid services. Yet others escape into Walter Mitty-style reverie, a traditional coping mechanism for those condemned to spend their lives in sterile office environments. It's probably no coincidence that nowadays many of these involve fantasies not of being a World War I flying ace, marrying a prince, or becoming a teenage heartthrob, but of having a better, just utterly, ridiculously better job. Boris, for instance, works for a major international institution writing bullshit reports. 
Here is his, obviously somewhat self-mocking, report. Boris. It is clearly a bullshit job because I have tried everything. Self-help books, sneaky, onanistic breaks, calling my mother and crying, realizing all my life choices have been pure shite. But I keep carrying on because I have a rent to pay. What's more, this situation, which causes me a mild to severe depression, also obliges me to postpone my true life's calling. Being J-Lo's or Beyonce's personal assistant, either separately or concomitantly. I am a hard-working, results-driven person, so I believe I could handle it well. I would be willing to work for one of the Kardashians, too, particularly Kim. Still, most testimonies focus on creativity as a form of defiance, the dogged fortitude with which many attempt to pursue art or music or writing or poetry serves as an antidote to the pointlessness of their real paid work. Obviously, sample bias may be a factor here. The testimonies sent to me were largely drawn from my followers on Twitter, a population likely to be more artsy and more politically engaged than the public at large. So I will not speculate on how common this is. But certain interesting patterns emerge. For instance, workers hired for a certain skill, but who are then not really allowed to exercise it, rarely end up exercising that skill in a covert way when they discover they have free time on their hands. They almost invariably end up doing something else. We've already observed in Chapter 3 how Ramadan, the engineer who dreamed of working at the cutting edge of science and technology, simply gave up when he discovered he was really expected to sit around doing paperwork all day. Rather than pursuing scientific projects on the sly, he threw himself into film, novels, and the history of Egyptian social movements. This is typical. Faye, who has been contemplating writing a pamphlet on how to keep your soul intact in corporate environments, falls back on music. Faye. The frustrated musician in me has come up with ways of silently learning music while stuck at my corporate desk. I studied Indian classical music for a while and have internalized two of their rhythmic systems. Indian approaches are abstract, numerical, and non-written, and so open up ways for me to silently and invisibly practice in my head. This means I can improvise music while stuck in the office and even incorporate inputs from the world around me. You can groove off the ticking clock as dull meetings drag on or turn a phone number into a rhythmic poem. You can translate the syllables of corporate jargon into quasi-hip-hop or interpret the proportions of the filing cabinet as a polyrhythm. Doing this has been a shield to more aggregate boredom in the workplace than I can possibly explain. I even gave a talk to friends a few months ago about using rhythm games to alleviate workplace boredom demonstrating how you can turn aspects of a dull meeting into a funk composition. Lewis, who describes himself as a fake investment banker for a financial consulting firm in Boston, is working on a play. When he realized his role in the company was basically pointless, he began to lose motivation and, with it, the ability to concentrate on the one or two hours per day he actually did need to work. His supervisor a stickler for time and optics, who seemed remarkably indifferent to productivity, didn't seem to mind what Lewis did so long as he didn't leave the office before she did. But what he describes as his Midwestern American guilt complex 
drove him to come up with a means to carry on. Lewis. Happily, I have an automatic standing desk and lots of mildly guilt-ridden BS free time. So, over the last three months, I've used that time to write my first play. Strangely, the creative output began out of necessity rather than desire. I found that I'm way more productive and efficient once I've chewed on a scene or dialogue. In order to do the 70 minutes or so of actual work I need to get done in a given day, I'll need another three to four hours of creative writing. Faye and Lewis are unusual. The most common complaint among those trapped in offices doing nothing all day is just how difficult it is to repurpose the time for anything worthwhile. One might imagine that leaving millions of well-educated young men and women without any real work responsibilities, but with access to the Internet, which is potentially, at least, a repository of almost all human knowledge and cultural achievement, might spark some sort of renaissance. Nothing remotely along these lines has taken place. Instead, the situation has sparked an efflorescence of social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Basically, of forms of electronic media that lend themselves to being produced and consumed while pretending to do something else. I am convinced this is the primary reason for the rise of social media, especially when one considers it in the light not just of the rise of bullshit jobs, but also of the increasing bullshitization of real jobs. As we've seen, the specific conditions vary considerably from one bullshit job to another. Some workers are supervised relentlessly. Others are expected to do some token task, but are otherwise left more or less alone. Most are somewhere in between. Yet, even in the best of cases, the need to be on call, to spend at least a certain amount of energy looking over one's shoulder, maintaining a false front, never looking too obviously engrossed, the inability to fully collaborate with others, all this lends itself much more to a culture of computer games, YouTube rants, memes, and Twitter controversies than to, say, the rock and roll bands, drug poetry, and experimental theater created under the mid-century welfare state. What we are witnessing is the rise of those forms of popular culture that office workers can produce and consume during the scattered, furtive shards of time they have at their disposal in workplaces where even when there's nothing for them to do, they still can't admit it openly. Some testimonies similarly bemoan the fact that traditional forms of artistic expression simply cannot be pursued under bullshit conditions. Parig, an Irish art school graduate shepherded into a pointless job at a foreign tech multinational owing to the complexities of the Irish welfare and tax system, which, he says, makes it almost impossible to be self-employed unless you're already rich, has been forced to abandon his life's calling. Porig. But what kills me most is the fact that outside of work, I have been unable to paint, to follow my creative impulses, to draw or scrape out ideas on canvas. I was quite focused on it whilst I was unemployed. But that didn't pay. So now I have the money and not the time, energy, or headspace to be creative. He still manages to keep up a political life as an anarchist, determined to destroy the economic system that does not allow him to pursue his life's true calling. Meanwhile, a New York legal aide, James, is reduced to acts of subtle protest. Spending all day in a sterile office environment, 
I'm too mentally numb to do anything but consume meaningless media, he says. And on occasion, yeah, I do feel quite depressed about it all. The isolation, the futility, the tiredness. My one small act of rebellion is wearing a black and red star pin into work every day. They have no fucking idea. Finally, a British psychologist who, owing to Prime Minister Tony Blair's higher education reforms of the 1990s, was laid off as a teacher and rehired as a project assessor to determine the effects of laying off teachers. Harry What surprises me is that it's astonishingly difficult to repurpose time for which one is being paid. I'd have felt guilty if I dodged the BS work and, say, used the time to have a go at writing a novel. I felt obliged to do my best to carry out the activities I was contracted to carry out, even if I knew those activities were entirely futile. David. You know, that's one theme that keeps cropping up in the testimonies I've been reading. Jobs that should be wonderful, since they pay you lots of money to do little or nothing, and often don't even insist you pretend to work, somehow drive people crazy anyway because they can't figure out a way to channel the time and energy into anything else. Harry. Well, here's one thing that bears out your assertion. These days I work as training manager in a bus depot. Not all that glamorous, of course, but much more purposeful work. And I actually do more freelance work for pleasure now, short stories, articles, than I did in that completely unchallenging BS job. David, maybe we're onto something here. Harry, yes, it's really interesting. So utilizing a bullshit job to pursue other projects isn't easy. It requires ingenuity and determination to take time that's been first flattened and homogenized, as all work time tends to be in what James calls sterile office environments, then broken randomly into often unpredictably large fragments, and use that time for projects requiring thought and creativity. Those who manage to do so have already sunk a great deal of their presumably finite creative energies just into putting themselves in a position where they can use their time for anything more ambitious than cat memes. Not that there's anything wrong with cat memes. I've seen some very good ones. But one would like to think our youth are meant for greater things. About the only accounts I received from workers who felt they had largely overcome the mental destruction caused by bullshit jobs were from those who had found a way to keep those jobs down to one or two days a week. Needless to say, this is logistically extremely difficult and usually impossible for either financial or career reasons. Hannibal might serve as a success story in this regard. The reader may recall him as the man who writes bullshit reports for marketing agencies for as much as 12,000 pounds a go and tries to limit this work if possible to one day a week. During the rest of the week, he pursues projects that he considers utterly worthwhile but knows that he couldn't possibly self-finance. Hannibal. One of the projects I'm working on is to create an image processing algorithm to read low-cost diagnostic strips for TB patients in the developing world. Tuberculosis is one of the world's biggest killers, causing one and a half million deaths a year with up to eight million infected at any one time. Diagnosis is still a significant problem, so if you can improve the treatment of just one percent of those eight million infected patients, then you can count lives improved in the tens of thousands per year.
we're already making a difference. This work is rewarding for all those involved. It's technically challenging, involves problem-solving, and working collaboratively to achieve a greater goal that we all believe in. It is the antithesis of a bullshit job. However, it is proving virtually impossible to raise more than a very small amount of money to do this. Even after spending much time and energy trying to convince various health executives there might be potentially lucrative spin-offs of one sort or another, he only raised enough to pay the expenses of the project itself. Certainly not enough to provide any sort of compensation for those working on it, including himself. So Hannibal ends up writing meaningless word spaghetti for marketing forums in order to fund a project that will actually save lives. Hannibal. If I get the opportunity, I ask people who work in PR or for global pharmaceutical companies what they think of this state of affairs, and their reactions are interesting. If I ask people more junior than me, they tend to think I'm setting them some kind of test or trying to catch them out. Perhaps I'm just trying to get them to admit that what they do is worthless so I can persuade their boss to make them redundant. If I ask people more senior than me what they think about this, they will usually start by saying something along the lines of, Welcome to the real world. Like I'm some teenage dropout yet to get it, and accept that I can't stay at home playing video games and smoking weed all day. I must admit that I spent quite a lot of time doing that as a teenager, but I'm no longer a teenager. In fact, I'm usually charging them a huge amount of money to write bullshit reports, so I often then detect that there's a moment of reflection as they internally question who it is that really doesn't get it. Hannibal is at the top of his game. An accomplished researcher who can walk with confidence in the corridors of corporate power. He's aware, too, that in the professional world, playing the part is everything. Form is always valued over content, and from all indications, he can perform the role with consummate skill. Thus, he can see his bullshit activities as basically a kind of scam, something he's putting over on the corporate world. He can even see himself as a kind of modern-day Robin Hood in a world where, as he put it, merely doing something worthwhile is subversive. It is important to emphasize that in professional environments, the ability to play the role is generally far more important than the ability to actually do the work. Mathematician Jeff Schmidt, in his excellent Discipline Minds, 2001, carefully documents how the bourgeois obsession with prioritizing form over content has played havoc with the professions. Why is it, he asks, that catch-me-if-you-can style imposters can often successfully pretend to be airline pilots or surgeons without anyone noticing they have no qualifications for the job. The answer, he suggests, is that it's almost impossible to get fired from a professional job, even pilot or surgeon, for mere incompetence, but very easy to get fired for defiance of accepted standards of external behavior, that is, for not properly playing the part. The imposters have zero competence, but play the part perfectly. Hence, they are much less likely to be dismissed from their positions than, say, an accomplished pilot or surgeon who openly defies the unspoken codes of external comportment attendant on the role. Hannibal's is a best-case scenario. Others turn to political activism. This can be extremely beneficial to a worker's emotional and physical health, 
and is usually easier to integrate with the fragmented nature of office time, this is true of digital activism at least, than more conventional creative pursuits. Psychological studies have shown that taking part in protests and street actions at least tend to have overall health benefits, reducing overall stress and with it rates of heart disease and other ailments. The study, however, focuses on street actions. It would be interesting to see if this also extends to less embodied forms of protest. Still, the psychological and emotional labor required to balance meaningful interests and bullshit work is often daunting. I've already mentioned Nori's work-related health problems, which began to improve markedly when he began working to unionize his workplace. It required definite mental discipline, yes, but not nearly so great as the mental discipline required to operate effectively in a high-pressure corporate environment where one knew one's work had no effect at all. Nori. I used to have to go literally insane to get into work. Scrub away me and become the thing that can do this work. Afterward, I'd often need a day to recover, to remember who I am. If I didn't, I'd become an acerbic, nitpicky person to people in my private life, enraged over tiny things. So I'd have to find all sorts of mental technologies to make my work bearable. The most effective motivations were deadlines and rage. For example, pretending I was slighted so I'd show them with my excellent productivity. But as a result, it was hard to organize the different parts of me, the ancient things which cohere into me. They quickly went off kilter. In contrast, I could stay up late for hours working on workplace organizer stuff, like teaching coworkers how to negotiate, programming, project management. I was most fully myself then. My imagination and logic worked in concert, until I saw dreams and had to sleep. Nori, too, experienced working on something meaningful as entirely different. True, unlike Hannibal, he wasn't working with a collaborative team, but even working toward a larger meaningful purpose, he felt, allowed him to reintegrate a shattered self. And eventually, he did begin to find the seeds of a community, at least in the minimal form of a fellow isolated workplace organizer. Nori I began to introduce myself to people by saying that programming is my day job and workplace organizer is my real job. My workplace subsidizes my activism. Recently, I found someone very much like me online. We've become deep, deep friends, and as of last week, I find it so much easier to get into the zone for work. I think it's because someone understands me. For all my other close friends, I'm an active listener, a sounding board, because they simply don't understand the things I care about. Their eyes glaze over when I even mention my activism. But even now, I still must empty my mind for work. I listen to Sigaros, Vardeldur, which my new friend sent me. Then I go into a sort of meditative trance. When the song's done, my mind's empty, and I can run fairly nimbly through work. It's always a good idea to end a bleak chapter on a note of redemption, and these stories demonstrate that it is possible to find purpose and meaning despite even the worst of bullshit jobs. It also makes clear that this takes a great deal of doing. The art of skiving, as it's sometimes called in England, 
may be highly developed and even honored in certain working-class traditions, but proper shirking does seem to require something real to shirk. In a truly bullshit job, it's often entirely unclear what one is really supposed to be doing, what one can say about what one is and isn't doing, who one can ask and what one can ask them, how much and within what parameters one is expected to pretend to be working, and what sorts of things it is or is not permissible to do instead. This is a miserable situation. The effects on health and self-esteem are often devastating. Creativity and imagination crumble. Sadomasochistic power dynamics frequently emerge. In fact, I would argue they will almost invariably emerge within top-down situations devoid of purpose unless explicit efforts are made to ensure that they do not and sometimes even despite such efforts. It is not for nothing that I've referred to the results as spiritual violence. This violence has affected our culture, our sensibilities. Above all, it has affected our youth. Young people in Europe and North America in particular, but increasingly throughout the world, are being psychologically prepared for useless jobs, trained in how to pretend to work, and then, by various means, shepherded into jobs that almost nobody really believes serve any meaningful purpose. Many, of course, then quit in horror and disgust. But we don't know the real numbers. Rachel suggested to me that many young people, unless in expensive metropolises like London, were less inclined to stick it out than their parents had been simply because the cost of housing and life in general is so ridiculously inflated that nowadays even an entry-level corporate job is not going to guarantee stability and security anymore. How this has come to happen, and how the current situation has become normalized or even encouraged, is a topic we will explore in Chapter 5. It needs to be addressed, because this is a genuine scar across our collective soul. Chapter 5. Why are bullshit jobs proliferating? In the Scilly Islands, the natives of that group are popularly said to have eked out a precarious livelihood by taking in each other's washing. Obscure 19th century joke. A bourgeois paradise will supervene, in which everyone will be free to exploit, but there will be no one to exploit. On the whole, one must suppose that the type of it would be that town that I have heard of, whose inhabitants lived by taking in each other's washing. William Morris, 1887. If the preceding chapters merely described forms of pointless employment that have always been with us in one way or another, or even that have always been with us since the dawn of capitalism, then matters would be distressing enough. But the situation is more dire still. There is every reason to believe that the overall number of bullshit jobs, and even more, the overall percentage of jobs considered bullshit by those who hold them, has been increasing rapidly in recent years, alongside the ever-increasing bullshitization of useful forms of employment. In other words, this is not just a book about a hitherto neglected aspect of the world of work. It's a book about a real social problem. Economies around the world have increasingly become vast engines for producing nonsense. How did this happen? And why has it received so little public attention? One reason it has been so little acknowledged, I think, is that under our current economic system, 
This is precisely what is not supposed to happen. In the same way as the fact that so many people feel so unhappy being paid to do nothing defies our common assumptions about human nature, the fact that so many people are being paid to do nothing in the first place defies all our assumptions about how market economies are supposed to work. For much of the 20th century, state socialist regimes dedicated to full employment created bogus jobs as a matter of public policy, and their social democratic rivals in Europe and elsewhere at least colluded in feather-bedding and overstaffing in the public sector or with government contractors when they weren't establishing self-conscious make-work programs like the Works Progress Administration, WPA, as the United States did at the height of the Great Depression. All of this was supposed to have ended with the collapse of the Soviet bloc and worldwide market reforms in the 90s. If the joke under the Soviet Union was, we pretend to work, they pretend to pay us, the new neoliberal age was supposed to be all about efficiency. But if patterns of employment are anything to go by, this seems to be exactly the opposite of what actually happened after the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So, part of the reason no one has noticed is that people simply refuse to believe that capitalism could produce such results, even if that meant writing off their own experiences or those of their friends and family as somehow anomalous. Another reason the phenomenon has been able to sail past people's heads is that we have developed a way of talking about changes in the nature of employment that seems to explain a lot of what we see and hear happening around us in this regard, but is, in fact, profoundly deceptive. I'm referring to the rise of what's called the service economy. Since the 1980s, all conversations on changes in the structure of employment have had to begin with an acknowledgement that the overall global trend, especially in rich countries, has been for a steady decline in farming and manufacturing and a steady increase in something called services. Often it's assumed that the decline of manufacturing, which incidentally hasn't declined that much in terms of employment in the United States, by 2010 only returning to about what it was at the outbreak of the Civil War, simply meant that factories were relocated to poorer countries. This is obviously true to an extent, but it's interesting to observe that the same overall trends in the composition of employment can be observed even in the countries to which the factory jobs were exported. For instance, India. The number of industrial jobs has remained constant or increased slightly, but otherwise the picture is not so very different. The real problem here is with the concept of a service economy itself. There's a reason I put the term service economy in quotation marks. Describing a country's economy as dominated by the service sector leaves one with the impression that people in that country are supporting themselves principally by serving each other iced lattes or pressing one another shorts. Obviously, this isn't really true. So what else might they be doing? When economists speak of a fourth or quaternary sector, coming after farming, manufacturing, and service provision, they usually define it as the fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate. But back in 1992, Robert Taylor, a library scientist, suggested it would be more useful to define it as information work. The results were telling. Even in 1990, 
the proportion of the workforce made up of actual waiters, barbers, sales clerks, and the like was really quite small. It also remained remarkably steady over time, holding for more than a century at roughly 20%. The vast majority of those others included in the service sector were really administrators, consultants, clerical and accounting staff, IT professionals, and the like. This was also the part of the service sector that was actually increasing, and increasing quite dramatically from the 1950s onward. And while no one, to my knowledge, has pursued this particular breakdown through to the present, the percentage of information jobs was already rapidly on the increase, even in the latter half of the 20th century. It seems reasonable to conclude this trend continued, and that the bulk of the new service jobs added to the economy were really of this same sort. This, of course, is precisely the zone where bullshit jobs proliferate. Obviously, not all information workers feel they are engaged in bullshit. Taylor's category includes scientists, teachers, and librarians, and by no means all those who felt they are engaged in bullshit are information workers. But if our surveys are to be trusted, it seems evident that a majority of those classed as information workers do feel that if their jobs were to vanish, it would make very little difference to the world. I think this is important to emphasize because, despite the lack of statistics, there has been a great deal of discussion since the 1990s about the rise of information-oriented jobs and their larger effect on society. Some, like former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich, spoke of the rise of a new tech-savvy middle class of symbolic analysts who threatened to gain all the benefits of growth and leave the old-fashioned laboring classes languishing in poverty. Others spoke of knowledge workers and information society. Some Marxists even became convinced that new forms of what they called immaterial labor, founded in marketing, entertainment, and the digital economy, but spilling outside as well into our increasingly brand-saturated iPhone-happy daily lives, had become the new locus of value creation, leading to prophecies of the eventual rebellion of the digital proletariat. It would be vain to try to list them all, but Reich's book was The Work of Nations, 1992, and the classic statement on immaterial labor is Maurizio Lazzarato, 1996, though it became famous largely through Hart and Neger's Empire, 1994 and 2000, which predicted the revolt of the computer geeks. Almost everyone assumed that the rise of such jobs had something to do with the rise of finance capital, even if there was no consensus as to how. It just seemed to make sense that, just as Wall Street profits were derived less and less from firms involved in commerce or manufacturing, and more and more from debt, speculation, and the creation of complex financial instruments, so did an ever-increasing proportion of workers come to make their living from manipulating similar abstractions. These days, it's hard to recall the almost mystical aura with which the financial sector had surrounded itself in the years leading up to 2008. Financiers had managed to convince the public, and not just the public, but social theorists too, I well remember this, that with instruments such as collateralized debt obligations and high-speed trading algorithms so complex they could be understood only by astrophysicists, they had, like modern alchemists, learned ways to whisk value out of nothing by means that others dared not even try to understand. Then, of course, came the crash, 
and it turned out that most of the instruments were scams. Many weren't even particularly sophisticated scams. In a way, one could argue that the whole financial sector is a scam of sorts, since it represents itself as largely about directing investments toward profitable opportunities in commerce and industry, when, in fact, it does very little of that. The overwhelming bulk of its profits comes from colluding with government to create, and then to trade and manipulate, various forms of debt. All I am really arguing in this book is that just as much of what the financial sector does is basically smoke and mirrors, so are most of the information sector jobs that accompanied its rise as well. But here we return to the question already raised in the last chapter. If these are scams, who exactly is scamming whom? A brief excursus on causality and the nature of sociological explanation. In this chapter, then, I want to address the rise of bullshit jobs and to suggest some reasons this may be happening. Of course, in earlier chapters, particularly chapter 2, we looked at some of the more immediate causes for the creation of useless employment. Managers whose prestige is caught up in the total number of their administrative assistants or underlings, weird corporate bureaucratic dynamics, bad management, poor information flow. These are important in understanding the overall phenomenon, but they don't really explain it. We still have to ask, why were such bad organizational dynamics more likely to occur in 2015 than they were in, say, 1915 or 1955? Has there been a change in organization culture, or is it something deeper? A change, perhaps, in our very conceptions of work. We are faced here with a classic problem in social theory, the problem of levels of causality. In the case of any given real-world event, there are any number of different reasons why one can say it happened. These, in turn, can be sorted into different kinds of reason. If I fall into an open manhole, one might attribute this to absent-mindedness. But if we discover there has been a sudden statistical increase in the number of people falling into manholes in a given city, one must seek a different sort of explanation. Either one must understand why overall rates of absent-mindedness are going up there, or, more likely, why more manholes are being left open. This is an intentionally whimsical example. Let's consider a more serious one. At the end of the last chapter, Mina noted that while many people who end up homeless have a history of addiction to alcohol or other drugs, or other personal foibles, Many others are teenagers abandoned by their parents, veterans with PTSD, and women fleeing domestic violence. No doubt, if you were to pick a random person sleeping on the streets or in a shelter and examine his or her life history, you would find a confluence of several such factors, usually combined with a great deal of just plain bad luck. No one individual, then, could be said to be sleeping on the streets simply because he or she was morally reprobate. But even if everyone sleeping on the streets really was morally reprobate in some way, it would be unlikely to do much to explain the rise and fall of levels of homelessness in different decades, or why rates of homelessness vary from country to country at any given time. This is a crucial point. After all, consider the matter in reverse. 
There have been moralists throughout the ages who have argued that the poor are poor because of their moral turpitude. After all, we are often reminded, it's easy to find examples of people born poor who became wealthy owing to sheer grit, determination, and entrepreneurial spirit. Clearly, then, the poor remain poor because they didn't make an effort they could have made. This sounds convincing if you look just at individuals. It becomes much less so when one examines comparative statistics and realizes that rates of upward-class mobility fluctuate dramatically over time. Did poor Americans just have less get-up-and-go during the 1930s than during previous decades? Or might it have had something to do with the Great Depression? It becomes harder still to hold to a purely moral approach when one also considers the fact that rates of mobility also vary sharply from country to country. A child born to parents of modest means in Sweden is much more likely to become wealthy than a similar child is in the United States. Must one conclude that Swedes overall have more grit and entrepreneurial spirit than Americans? I doubt most contemporary conservative moralists would wish to argue this. One must then seek a different sort of explanation. Access to education, for example, or the fact that the poorest Swedish children aren't nearly as poor as the poorest American ones. There are many such studies. For one example, see Western and Oland Wright, 1994. This doesn't mean that personal qualities do not help explain why some poor Swedish children succeed and others do not, but these are different kinds of questions in different levels of analysis. The question of why one player won a game rather than another is different from the question of how hard the game is to play. Or why people are playing the game to begin with. That's a third question. Similarly, in cases like these, where one is looking at a broad pattern of social change, such as the rise of bullshit jobs, I would propose we really need to look not at two, but at three different levels of explanation. One, the particular reasons any given individual ends up homeless. Two, the larger social and economic forces that lead to increased levels of homelessness, say a rise in rents or changes in the family structure, and finally, three, the reasons why no one intervened. We might refer to this last as the political and cultural level. It's also the easiest to overlook, since it often deals specifically with things people are not doing. I well remember the first time I discussed the phenomenon of homelessness in America with friends in Madagascar. They were flabbergasted to discover that in the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world, there were people sleeping on the streets. But aren't Americans ashamed? One friend asked me. They're so rich. Doesn't it bother them to know everyone else in the world will see it as a national embarrassment? I had to concede it was a good question. Why didn't Americans see people sleeping on the streets as a national embarrassment? In certain periods of U.S. history, they certainly would have. If large numbers of people were living on the streets in major cities in the 1820s, or even the 1940s, there would have been an outcry and some kind of action would have been taken. It might not have been very nice action. At some points, it would probably have meant rounding up vagrants and placing them in workhouses, at other times, it might have involved building public housing. 
But whatever it might have been, they would not have been left to languish in cardboard boxes on public thoroughfares. Since the 1980s, the same American was more likely to react not with outrage at how social conditions could have come to this pass, but by appeal to explanations of the first level, and conclude that homelessness was nothing more than the inevitable result of human weakness. Humans are fickle beings. They always have been. There's nothing anyone can do to change this fact. I had a friend who was addicted to heroin and went on a methadone program. Bored of waiting for doctors to decide he was ready to begin reducing his dosage, he started pouring off a little of the drug each day until, some months later, he was able to announce triumphantly that he was clean. His doctor was furious and told him only professionals have the competence to decide when he should have done this. It turns out the program was funded on the basis of the number of patients they served and had no incentive to actually get anyone off drugs. One should never underestimate the power of institutions to try to preserve themselves. One explanation for the 30-year impasse of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, if at this point one could even call it that, is that on both sides there are now powerful institutional structures that would lose their entire raison d'etre if the conflict ended, but also a vast peace apparatus of NGOs and UN bureaucrats whose careers have become entirely dependent on maintaining the fiction that a peace process is in fact going on. This is why I emphasize that the third level is simultaneously political and cultural. It bears on basic assumptions about what people are, what can be expected of them, and what they can justifiably demand of one another. Those assumptions, in turn, have an enormous influence in determining what is considered to be a political issue and what is not. I don't want to suggest that popular attitudes are the only factor here. Political authorities often ignore the popular will. Polls regularly find roughly two-thirds of Americans favor a national health care system, but no major political party there has ever supported this. Polls also show most Britons favor reinstating the death penalty, but no major political party has taken this up either. UKIP doesn't count. Still, the larger cultural climate is clearly a factor. In the case of bullshit jobs, this means that we can ask three questions. One, on the individual level, why do people agree to do and put up with their own bullshit jobs? Two, on social and economic levels, what are the larger forces that have led to the proliferation of bullshit jobs? Three, on the cultural and political levels, why is the bullshitization of the economy not seen as a social problem, and why has no one done anything about it? To head off any possible accusations of essentialism, I'm proposing these three levels as modes of analysis and not suggesting the existence of autonomous levels of social reality that in any sense exist in their own right. Much of the confusion that surrounds debate about social issues in general can be traced back to the fact that people will regularly take these different explanations as alternatives rather than seeing them as factors that all operate at the same time. For example, people sometimes tell me that any attempt to explain bullshit jobs in political terms is wrong-headed. Such jobs, they insist, exist because people need the money. As if this consideration had somehow never occurred to me before. 
looking at the subjective motives of those who take such jobs, is then treated as an alternative to asking why so many people find themselves in a position where the only way they can get money is by taking such jobs to begin with. It's even worse on the cultural-political level. There's come to be a tacit understanding in polite circles that you can ascribe motives to people only when speaking about the individual level. Therefore, any suggestion that powerful people ever do anything they don't say they're doing, or even do what they can be publicly observed to be doing for reasons other than what they say, is immediately denounced as a paranoid conspiracy theory to be rejected instantly. Thus, to suggest that some law and order politicians or social service providers might not feel it's in their best interest to do much about the underlying causes of homelessness is treated as equivalent to saying homelessness exists itself only because of the machinations of a secret cabal, or that the banking system is run by lizards. Sundry Notes on the Role of Government in Creating and Maintaining Bullshit Jobs This is relevant because when, in the original 2013 essay about bullshit jobs, I suggested that while our current work regime was never designed consciously, one reason it might have been allowed to remain in place was because the effects are actually quite convenient politically to those in power. This was widely denounced as crazy talk. So another thing this chapter can do is clarify a few things in that regard. Social engineering does happen. The regime of make-work jobs that existed in the Soviet Union or communist China, for example, was created from above by a self-conscious government policy of full employment. To say this is in no sense controversial. Pretty much everyone accepts that it is the case. Still, it's hardly as if anyone sitting in the Kremlin or the Great Hall of the People actually sent out a directive saying, I hereby order all officials to invent unnecessary jobs until unemployment is eliminated. The reason no such orders were sent out was because they didn't have to be. The policy spoke for itself. As long as you don't say, aim for full employment, but do not create jobs unless they conform to the following standards, and make it clear you will be very punctilious about ensuring those standards are met, then one can be sure of the results. Local officials will do what they have to do. While no central directives of this kind were ever sent out under capitalist regimes, at least to my knowledge, it is nonetheless true that at least since World War II, all economic policy has been premised on an ideal of full employment. Now, there is every reason to believe that most policymakers don't actually want to fully achieve this ideal, as genuine full employment would put too much upward pressure on wages. Marx appears to have been right when he argued that a reserve army of the unemployed has to exist in order for capitalism to work the way it's supposed to. I sometimes ask my students, when discussing Marx, what was the unemployment level in ancient Greece, or medieval China? The answer, of course, is zero. Having a large proportion of the population who wish to work but cannot appears to be peculiar to what Marx liked to call the capitalist mode of production. But it appears to be, like public debt, a structural feature of the system which must nonetheless be treated as if it were a problem to be solved. But it remains true that more jobs is the one political slogan that both left and right can always agree on. To take a random example, 
The famous march on Washington in 1963, at which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, was officially called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Demands included not just anti-discrimination measures, but also a full employment economy, jobs programs, and a minimum wage increase. They differ only about the most expedient means to produce the jobs. Banners held aloft at a union march calling for jobs never also specify that those jobs should serve some useful purpose. It's just assumed that they will, which of course means that often they won't. Similarly, when right-wing politicians call for tax cuts to put more money in the hands of job creators, they never specify whether those jobs will be good for anything. It's simply assumed that if the market produced them, they will be. In this climate, one might say that political pressure is being placed on those managing the economy similar to the directives once coming out of the Kremlin. It's just that the source is more diffuse, and much of it falls on the private sector. Finally, as I've emphasized, there is the level of conscious public policy. A Soviet official issuing a planning document, or an American politician calling for job creation, might not be entirely aware of the likely effects of their action. Still, once a situation is created, even as an unintended side effect, politicians can be expected to size up the larger political implications of that situation when they make up their minds what, if anything, to do about it. Does this mean that members of the political class might actually collude in the maintenance of useless employment? If that seems a daring claim, even conspiracy talk, consider the following quote from an interview with then-U.S. President Barack Obama about some of the reasons why he bucked the preferences of the electorate and insisted on maintaining a private, for-profit health insurance system in America. I don't think in ideological terms. I never have, Obama said, continuing on the health care theme. Everybody who supports single-payer health care says, Look at all this money we would be saving from insurance and paperwork. That represents one million, two million, three million jobs filled by people who are working at Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or Kaiser, or other places. What are we doing with them? Where are we employing them? I would encourage the reader to reflect on this passage because it might be considered a smoking gun. What is the president saying here? He acknowledges that millions of jobs in medical insurance companies like Kaiser or Blue Cross are unnecessary. He even acknowledges that a socialized health system would be more efficient than the current market-based system since it would reduce unnecessary paperwork and reduplication of effort by dozens of competing private firms. But he's also saying it would be undesirable for that very reason. One motive, he insists, for maintaining the existing market-based system is precisely its inefficiency, since it is better to maintain those millions of basically useless office jobs than to cast about trying to find something else for the paper pushers to do. Of course, some might argue that Obama was being disingenuous here and downplaying the political power of the private health industry in the same way that politicians justified bank bailouts by claiming it was in the interest of millions of minor bank employees who might otherwise have been laid off a concern they most certainly do not evince when, say, transit or textile workers are faced with unemployment. But the very fact that he was willing to make the argument is revealing. So, 
Here is the most powerful man in the world at the time publicly reflecting on his signature legislative achievement. And he is insisting that a major factor in the form that legislature took is the preservation of bullshit jobs. To those who accuse me of being a paranoid conspiracy theorist for suggesting that government plays any conscious role in creating and maintaining bullshit jobs, I hereby rest my case. Unless you think Obama was lying about his true motives, in which case, who exactly is the conspiracy theorist, we must allow that those governing us are, in fact, aware that market solutions create inefficiencies, and unnecessary jobs in particular. And, at least in certain contexts, look with favor on them for that very reason. That a political culture where job creation is everything might produce such results should not be shocking, though for some reason it is in fact treated as shocking. But it does not in itself explain the economic and social dynamics by which those jobs first come into being. In the remainder of this chapter, we will consider these dynamics and then return briefly to the role of government. Concerning some false explanations for the rise of bullshit jobs. Before mapping out what actually happened, it will first be necessary to dispose of certain very common, if ill-conceived, explanations for the rise of apparently pointless employment frequently proposed by market enthusiasts. Since libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, enthusiasts for Ayn Rand or Friedrich Hayek and the like are extremely common in pop economic forums, and since such market enthusiasts are committed to the assumption that a market economy could not, by definition, create jobs that serve no purpose, one tends to hear these arguments quite a lot. So we might as well address them. This is then preemptive. I acknowledge that, historically, for an author to head off obvious objections almost never succeeds in stopping further critics from raising those objections anyway. Generally, they just pretend their objections were never anticipated and ignore any counter-arguments to them that might have been made. But I figured it was worth a try. Basically, such arguments fall into two broad types. Proponents of each are happy to admit that at least some of those who believe they hold pointless jobs in the public sector are correct. However, the first group argues that those who harbor similar suspicions in the private sector are not correct. Since competing firms would never pay workers to do nothing, their jobs must be useful in some way that they simply do not understand. The second group admits useless paper-pushing jobs do exist in the private sector, and even that they have proliferated. However, this group insists that private sector bullshit jobs must necessarily be a product of government interference. A perfect example of the first kind of argument can be found in a piece in The Economist, published about a day and a half after the appearance of my original Bullshit Jobs essay in 2013. It had all the trappings of a rush job, but the very fact that this bastion of free market orthodoxy felt the need to respond almost instantly shows that the editors knew how to identify an ideological threat. They summed up their argument as follows. Over the past century, the world economy has grown increasingly complex. The goods being provided are more complex. The supply chains used to build them are more complex. The systems to market, sell, and distribute them are more complex. The means to finance it all is more complex, and so on. This complexity is what makes us rich. But it is an enormous pain to manage. 
I'd say that one way to manage it all would be through teams of generalists, craftsman managers who mine the system from the design stage right through to the customer service calls. But there is no way such complexity would be economically workable in that world, just as cheap, ubiquitous automobiles would have been impossible in a world where teams of generalist mechanics produced cars one at a time. No, the efficient way to do things is to break businesses up into many different kinds of tasks, allowing for a very high level of specialization. And so you end up with the clerical equivalent of repeatedly affixing tab A to frame B, shuffling papers, management of the minutia of supply chains, and so on. Disaggregation may make it look meaningless, since many workers end up doing things incredibly far removed from the endpoints of the process. The days when the iron ore goes in one door and the car rolls out the other are over, but the idea is the same. In other words, the author claims that when we speak of bullshit jobs, the piece has no byline. We're really just talking about the post-industrial equivalent of factory line workers. Those with the unenviable fate of having to carry out the repetitive, mind-numbingly boring, but still very necessary tasks required to manage increasingly complicated processes of production. As robots replace the factory workers, these are increasingly the only jobs left. This position is sometimes combined with a rather condescending argument about self-importance. If so many people feel their jobs are useless, it's really because today's educated workforce is full of philosophy or Renaissance literature majors who believe they are cut out for better things. They consider being a mere cog in administrative machinery beneath their dignity. I don't think I really need to dwell too much on the second argument, since the listener is likely to have encountered variations of it a thousand times before. Anyone who truly believes in the magic of the marketplace will always insist that any problem, any injustice, any absurdity that might seem to be produced by the market is really caused by government interference with same. This must be true, because the market is freedom, and freedom is always good. Putting it this way might sound like a caricature, but I have met libertarians willing to say exactly that in almost exactly those words. If you ask, are you really saying the market is always right? They will often reply, yes, I am saying the market is always right. Of course, the problem with any such argument is that it's circular. It can't be disproved. Since all actually existing market systems are to some degree state-regulated, it's easy enough to insist that any results one likes, say high levels of overall wealth, are the result of the workings of the market, and that any features one doesn't like, say, high levels of overall poverty, are really due to government interference in the workings of the market, and then insist that the burden of proof is on anyone who would argue otherwise. No real evidence in favor of the position is required because it is basically a profession of faith. Instead, it's always assumed the burden of proof is on those who question such assertions. Now, this being said, I should hasten to point out I am not saying government regulation plays no role in the creation of bullshit jobs, particularly of the box-ticker variety. Clearly, it does. As we've already seen, whole industries, such as corporate compliance, would not exist at all were it not for government regulations. But the argument here is not that such regulations are one reason for the rise of bullshit jobs, it's that they are the primary or even the only reason. To sum up, then, we have two arguments. First, 
that globalization has rendered the process of production so complicated that we need ever more office workers to administer it, so these are not bullshit jobs. Second, that while many of them are indeed bullshit jobs, they only exist because increases in government regulation have not only created an ever-burgeoning number of useless bureaucrats, but also forced corporations to employ armies of box tickers to keep them at bay. Both these arguments are wrong, and I think a single example can refute both of them. Let us consider the case of private universities in the United States. In Benjamin Ginsburg's book, The Fall of the Faculty, he produces two tables about the administrative takeover of American universities, which gives us pretty much all we need to know. The first shows the growth in the proportion of administrators and their staff in American universities overall. During the 30 years in question, a time during which tuition skyrocketed, the overall number of teachers per student remained largely constant. In fact, the period ended with slightly fewer teachers per student than before. At the same time, the number of administrators and, above all, administrative staff ballooned to an unprecedented degree. Is this because the process of production, in this case this would presumably mean teaching, reading, writing, and research, had become two or three times more complicated between 1985 and 2005 so that it now requires a small army of office staff to administer it? Obviously not. Here, I can speak from personal experience. I note in passing, and this will be important later, that while the number of administrators has gone up, the real explosion has been in administrative staff. This figure does not, I should emphasize, refer to caterers or cleaners who were, in fact, being largely outsourced during this period, but to administrative underlings. Certainly things have changed a bit since I was in college in the 1980s. Lecturers are now expected to provide PowerPoint displays instead of writing on blackboards. There's greater use of class blogs, Moodle pages, and the like. But all this is pretty minor stuff. It's nothing even remotely comparable to, say, the containerization of shipping, Japanese-style, just-in-time production regimes, or the globalization of supply chains. For the most part, teachers continue to do what they have always done. Give lectures, lead seminars, meet students during office hours, and grade papers and exams. Most of the changes that did directly affect teaching, such as, say, class chat rooms, were managed by the proportionally declining numbers of teachers themselves. What about the heavy hand of government, then? Ginsburg provides us with a refutation of that claim, too. In reality, the number of administrators and managers at private institutions increased at more than twice the rate as it did at public ones. It seems extremely unlikely that government regulation caused private sector administrative jobs to be created at twice the rate as it did within the government bureaucracy itself. In fact, the only reasonable interpretation of these numbers is precisely the opposite. Public universities are ultimately answerable to the public and, hence, under constant political pressure to cut costs and not engage in wasteful expenditures. This may lead to some peculiar priorities. In most U.S. states, the highest-paid public servant is a football or basketball coach at a state university. But it does tend to limit the degree to which a newly appointed dean can simply decide that since he is obviously a very important person, it is only natural that he should have five or six additional administrative staff working under him, and only then begin trying to figure out what said staff are actually going to do. 
Administrators at private universities are answerable only to their board of trustees. Trustees are usually extremely rich. If they are not themselves creatures of the corporate world, they are, at the very least, used to moving in an environment shaped by its mores and sensibilities. And as a result, they tend to view such a dean's behavior as entirely normal and unobjectionable. Ginsburg himself sees the increase in the numbers and power of university administrators as a simple power grab, one which, he says, has resulted in a profound shift in assumptions about the very nature of universities and the reasons for their existence. Back in the 1950s or 1960s, one could still say that universities were one of the few European institutions that had survived more or less intact from the Middle Ages. Crucially, they were still run on the old medieval principle that only those involved in a certain form of production, whether this be the production of stonework or leather gloves or mathematical equations, had the right to organize their own affairs. Indeed, that they were also the only people qualified to do so. Universities were basically craft guilds run for and by scholars, and their most important business was considered to be producing scholarship. Their second most, training new generations of scholars. True, since the 19th century, universities had maintained a kind of gentleman's pact with government, that they would also train civil servants, and later corporate bureaucrats, in exchange for otherwise being largely left alone. But since the 80s, Ginsburg argues, university administrators have effectively staged a coup. They wrested control of the university from the faculty and oriented the institution itself toward entirely different purposes. It is now commonplace for major universities to put out strategic vision documents that barely mention scholarship or teaching, but go on at length about the student experience, research excellence, getting grants, collaboration with business or government, and so forth. All this rings very true for anyone familiar with the university scene, but the question remains. If this was a coup, how did the administrators manage to get away with it? One has to assume that even in the 1880s, there were university administrators who would have been delighted to seize power in this way and each hire themselves a retinue of minions. What happened in the intervening century that put them in a position to actually do so? And whatever it was, how is it connected to the rise of the total proportion of managers, administrators, and meaningless paper pushers outside the academy that occurred during the same period of time? Since this is the period that also saw the rise of finance capitalism, it might be best to return to the FIRE sector, finance, insurance, real estate, to seek insight into what overall dynamic in the economy sparked such changes. If those whom the economist believes to be administering complex global supply chains are not, in fact, administering complex global supply chains, then what exactly are they doing? And does what is happening in those offices provide any sort of window on what is happening elsewhere? Why the financial industry might be considered a paradigm for bullshit job creation. Expedited frictionless convergences. Coordinated interactive market institutions. Contracted virtual clearinghouses. Directed margin adjustments. On a superficial level, of course, the immediate mechanisms that create bullshit jobs in the fire sector are the same ones that produce them anywhere else. 
I listed some of these in chapter two when I described the five basic types of bullshit jobs and how they came about. Flunky positions are created because those in powerful positions in an organization see underlings as badges of prestige. Goons are hired due to a dynamic of one-upmanship. If our rivals employ a top law firm, then so too must we. Duct taper positions are created because sometimes organizations find it more difficult to fix a problem than to deal with its consequences. Box taker positions exist because, within large organizations, paperwork attesting to the fact that certain actions have been taken often comes to be seen as more important than the actions themselves. Taskmasters exist largely as side effects of various forms of impersonal authority. If large organizations are conceived as a complex play of gravitational forces pulling in many contradictory directions, one could say there will always be a certain pull in any of these five. Even so, one must ask, why is there not a greater pressure pulling in the opposite direction? Why is this not seen as more of a problem? Firms like to represent themselves as lean and mean. It seems to me that those creating, playing around with, and destroying large amounts of money in the fire sector provide the perfect place to begin to ask this question. In part, because many who work in this sector are convinced that almost everything done in it is basically a scam. Elliot So I did this job for a little while working for one of the big four accountancy firms. They had been contracted by a bank to provide compensation to customers that had been involved in the PPI scandal. The accountancy firm was paid by the case, and we were paid by the hour. As a result, they purposefully mistrained and disorganized staff so that the jobs were repeatedly and consistently done wrong. The systems and practices were changed and modified all the time to ensure no one could get used to the new practice and actually do the work correctly. This meant that cases had to be redone and contracts extended. In case the listener is unaware, the PPI, Payment Protection Insurance Scandal, broke in the United Kingdom in 2006, when a large number of banks were found to have been unloading unwanted and often wildly disadvantageous account insurance policies on their clients. Courts ordered much of the money returned, and the result was an entire new industry organized around resolving PPI claims. As Elliot reported it, at least some of those hired to process these claims were intentionally dragging their feet to milk the contract for all they could. Elliot The senior management had to be aware of this, but it was never explicitly stated. In looser moments, some of the management said things like, We make money from dealing with a leaky pipe. Do you fix the pipe, or do you let the pipe keep leaking? Or words to that effect. There had been vast sums set aside by the bank to pay compensation for the PPI. This is actually a fairly common story in the testimonies I received. I heard about similar things going on in law firms involved with asbestos compensation payments as well. Whenever a very large sum of money, in the hundreds of millions, is set aside to compensate an entire class of people, a bureaucracy must be set up to locate claimants, process claims, and portion out the money. This bureaucracy may often involve hundreds or even thousands of people. Since the money that pays their salaries is ultimately coming from the same pot, they have no particular incentive to distribute the spoils efficiently. That would be killing the goose that laid the golden egg. 
According to Elliot, this often led to crazy surreal stuff, like intentionally placing offices in different cities and forcing people to commute between them, or printing and destroying the same documents a half dozen times, all the while threatening legal action against anyone who revealed such practices to outsiders. For the record, I don't know which of the four it was. Clearly, the point was to siphon off as much of the money as possible before it got to the claimants. The longer the lower-level people took, the more the company would earn. But owing to the peculiar dynamic discussed in the last chapter, the very pointlessness of the exercise seemed to exacerbate levels of stress and abusive behavior. Elliot The cynicism involved was remarkable. I guess it works out to a form of parasitism. As it happens, the job was also extremely difficult and stressful. It appeared that part of their business model was placing impossible targets which would increase all the time so that turnover was high and more staff would regularly have to be brought in and mistrained so that, I imagine, the firm could plausibly ask their client that the contract be extended further. This was demoralizing, of course. I'm now working as a cleaner, which is the least bullshit-slash-alienated job I've ever had. David so, this sounds like a whole new category. Jobs intentionally done wrong. How common do you think that is? Elliot. From what I've heard among other people in different companies, the PPI industry is basically built around this principle, on the basis that apparently it's only large accountancy firms that really have the capacity to take on contracts like that. David. Well, I see how one could make the argument that in any system where you're basically dealing with the distribution of spoils, it makes sense to create as many layers of parasites in between as possible. But who are they ultimately milking? Their clients? Or who? Elliot. I'm not sure who is ultimately paying for this. The bank? An insurance company that insured the bank against losses on fraud activities in the first place? Of course, ultimately, it would be the consumer and taxpayer who pay. All these companies need to know is how to milk it. As long ago as 1852, Charles Dickens in Bleak House was already making fun of the legal profession with the case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce, in which two teams of barristers keep the battle over a huge estate alive for more than a lifetime until they've devoured the whole thing, whereupon they simply declare the matter moot and move on. The moral of the story is that when a profit-seeking enterprise is in the business of distributing a very large sum of money, the most profitable thing for it to do is to be as inefficient as possible. Of course, this is basically what the entire fire sector does. It creates money by making loans and then moves it around in often extremely complicated ways, extracting another small cut with every transaction. The results often leave bank employees feeling that the entire enterprise is just as pointless as the accountancy companies intentionally mistraining employees to milk a cash cow. Surprising numbers of bank employees can't even figure out what the real justification for their particular species of bank is supposed to be. Bruce I work as a fund accountant at a custodian bank. I've never really figured out what custodian banks do. I understand the concepts associated with custodian banks, but I always thought of them as just an unnecessary added layer of accounting. Custodian banks safeguard concepts such as stocks and bonds. How do they actually do that? 
Can Russian hackers steal these concepts? As far as I can see, the entire custodian bank industry is bullshit. One reason for the confusion, perhaps, is that the level of general fear, stress, and paranoia appears to be much greater in banks than in most of the other enterprises we've been considering so far. Employees are under enormous pressure not to ask too many questions. One rebel banker, who described to me in detail the machinations by which the biggest banks would lobby the government to introduce regulations to their advantage, and then expect everyone to play along with the pretense that the regulations had simply been imposed, told me he thought it's almost as bad as coming out as gay would have been in the 1950s. There are many people who have read on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs and know of the reality of our industry, yet they, including myself, are consumed by fear of losing our jobs, so we don't talk about or discuss these issues openly. We lie to ourselves, our colleagues, and our families. Such sentiments were commonplace. Almost all bank workers I corresponded with insisted on elaborate secrecy, effacing any detail that might possibly connect them to their employer. At the same time, many emphasized how cathartic it was to be able to finally express things that had been percolating through their minds for so many years. Here, for instance, is the testimony of Rupert, an economic refugee from Australia now working in the city of London on bullshitization within the financial institution where he presently works. Rupert. So in banking, obviously, the entire sector adds no value and is therefore bullshit. But let's leave that to the side for a minute and look at those within banking who literally do nothing. There actually are not all that many of these because banking is a weird mix. Overall, we do nothing, yet within that nothing, it's efficient, meritocratic, and in general, lean. Still, the most obvious is the cheerleader human resources department. At some point, banking realized that everyone hates them and that their staff knows this too, so they set about trying to make the staff feel better about it all. We have an intranet that HR was told to make into a kind of internal community, like Facebook. They set it up, nobody used it. So they then started to try and bully everyone into using it, which made us hate it even more. Then they tried to entice people in by having HR post a load of touchy-feely crap or people writing internal blogs that nobody cared about. Still, nobody comes. Three years they've been at this. The internal intranet Facebook page is just full of HR people saying something cheesy about the company and then other HR people saying, Great post, I really agree with this. How they can stand this, I have no idea. It's a monument to the total lack of cohesiveness in banking. Another one is they have some big drive to do charity for a week. I refuse to participate, as though I give to charity, I will not give through my bank. As for them, it's just a big advertising drive in an attempt to shore up morale internally and make it look like banking isn't appropriating labor through usury. They put out a target of, say, 90% participation, all voluntary, and then for two months they try to get people to sign up. If you don't sign up, they note your name, and then people come and ask you why you haven't signed up. In the last two weeks before the end of it, we get automated emails that look like they come from the CEO encouraging you to sign up. The last time, I was actually worried about losing my job over holding out. For me, this would have been bad, 
as I'm in a foreign country on a work visa with no right to remain. But hold on, I did. The number of man-hours spent chasing this voluntary charity work is amazing. Voluntold is, I believe, the technical term. The charity work itself is totally empty. Things like two hours of litter picking, giving bad sandwiches to the homeless where someone else organizes all the sandwich packages, etc., and bank employees just turn up and hand them out, then go home again in their nice cars. A lot of the charity work is driven by Best Company to Work for in X awards that stipulate criteria like charitable work. The bank then has to hit that criteria to be considered, which will then help them with recruiting. They spend God knows how many hours every year trying to do this. Okay, next. The timesheet guy. After listing a few positions that could easily be automated away and seem to exist only to provide employment, Rupert ends with the most apparently useless position of all. Rupert. Finally, middle management. The other day, I had to get an approval from someone at middle management level. I clicked on a system to email out approval requests. Twenty-five middle managers were listed. Only one needed to approve. I had only ever heard of one of them. What are these people doing all day long? Are they not worried about being found out and having to work at McDonald's? According to those middle managers who've contacted me, the answer to, what are these people doing all day long, would be, in many cases at least, not much. So in Rupert's estimation at least, in the lower echelons, competence and efficiency actually do seem to be the reigning values. The higher one goes up the ladder, the less true this appears to be. Rupert's account is fascinating from any number of perspectives. Take the theme of how artificial contests operate as a mechanism of bullshitization, one that cropped up in numerous other contexts as well. Many of the follies of local government in the UK, for instance, are driven by a similar desire to be named best council in a given region, or in the country as a whole. In every case, such contests set off a frenzy of box-ticking rituals, climaxing, in this case, in the ridiculous simulations of charity demanded of present employees so as to be able to tell potential future employees that their company has been voted one of the best places to work. Most of the other elements in Rupert's testimony appear in other accounts from inside major financial institutions as well. The confused mix of frenetic, stressful, but almost magic efficiency in some sectors, the obvious bloat in others, all in a context where no one was quite sure what the bank really did or if it was even a legitimate enterprise. The fact that such questions could never be discussed. Another common theme was the way many of those laboring in financial institutions, to a much larger degree than those in most large corporations, had little or no idea how their work contributed to the bank as a whole. Irene, for example, worked for several major investment banks in onboarding, that is, monitoring whether the bank's clients, in this case, various hedge funds and private equity funds, were in compliance with government regulations. In theory, every transaction the bank engaged in had to be assessed. The process was self-evidently corrupt, since the real work was outsourced to shady outfits in Bermuda, Mauritius, and or the Cayman Islands, where bribes are cheap, and they invariably found everything to be in order. Nonetheless, 
Since a 100% approval rate would hardly do, an elaborate edifice had to be erected so as to make it look as if sometimes they did indeed find problems sometimes. So Irene would report that the outsider reviewers had okayed the transaction, and a quality control board would review Irene's paperwork and duly locate typos and other minor errors. Then the total number of fails in each department would be turned over to be tabulated by a metrics division, this allowing everyone involved to spend hours every week in meetings arguing over whether any particular fail was real. Irene. There was an even higher cast of bullshit, propped atop the metrics bullshit, which were the data scientists. Their job was to collect the fail metrics and apply complex software to make pretty pictures out of the data. The bosses would then take these pretty pictures to their bosses, which helped ease the awkwardness inherent in the fact that they had no idea what they were talking about or what any of their teams actually did. At Big Bank A, I had five bosses in two years. At Big Bank B, I had three. The vast majority were installed, cherry-picked by higher-ups, and gifted these castles of shit. In many cases, sadly, it was how the companies met their minorities in management quota. So once again, we have the same combination of fraud, pretense, no one was allowed to talk about the shady companies in the Cayman Islands, a system designed not to be understood, which was then pushed off on managers who had no idea what was going on below them, largely because it made no sense. It was all just a meaningless ritual. What's entirely unclear is whether anyone on top of the food chain, the data crunchers, the just-passing-through executives, even the higher-ups who chose them, actually knew how pointless it all was. Finally, on top of the usual artificially-induced stress and tension and barking about deadlines, the usual sadomasochistic interpersonal relations, and the usual fearful silences, that is, all the things that typically happen when pointless projects are organized on top-down lines, there was the intense pressure on employees to take part in a different set of rituals designed to prove the institution really cared. In Irene's case, these were not staged charity events, but new-agey seminars that often drove her to the point of tears. Irene On top of the metrics, there were the cruel, patronizing, flexibility, and mindfulness seminars. No, you can't work fewer hours. No, you can't get paid more. No, you can't choose which bullshit projects to decline. But you can sit through this seminar where the bank tells you how much it values flexibility. The mindfulness seminars were even worse. They attempted to reduce the unfathomable beauty and stupefying sadness of the human experience into the raw physicality of breathing, eating, and shitting. Breathe mindfully. Eat mindfully. Shit mindfully. And you can be successful in business. All of this, presumably, to remind the employee that if one reduced life to pure physicality, the fact that some abstractions were more real than others, and that some office tasks seemed to serve a legal and moral or even economic purpose and others did not, was not really all that important. It's as if they first forbid you to acknowledge you are engaging in empty ritual, then force you to attend seminars where hired gurus tell you, in the final analysis, isn't everything we do just empty ritual? What we've seen so far from Elliot, Rupert, and Irene 
are all partial, situated perspectives on very large and complicated organizations. None of them has an overall panoptic view. But it's not entirely clear if anyone else does either. One has to assume the higher-ups in Irene's story, who intentionally assign executives from minority backgrounds to the onboarding sector, are aware that most of what goes on in that part of the company is bullshit. Even they might not know precisely how and why. Nor would it be possible to create some kind of secret survey to determine what percentage of bank workers secretly believe their jobs to be bullshit and the divisions in which they tend to be concentrated. The closest I was able to find to general insight came from a certain Simon, who had been employed by a series of large international banks in risk management, which basically, he says, means to analyze and find problems in their internal processes. Simon. I spent two years analyzing the critical payment and operations processes at one bank, with the sole aim to work out how a staff member might use the computer systems to commit fraud and theft, and thereby recommend solutions to prevent this. What I discovered by chance was that most people at the bank didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. They would say that they are only supposed to log into this one system and select one menu option and type certain things in. They didn't know why. So Simon's job was basically to be the all-seeing eye that determined how different parts of a bank's many moving parts fit together and iron out any incoherences, vulnerabilities, or redundancies he might find. In other words, he's about as qualified to answer the question as anyone could be. His conclusions? Simon. In my conservative estimation, 80% of the bank's 60,000 staff were not needed. Their jobs could either completely be performed by a program or were not needed at all because the programs were designed to enable or replicate some bullshit process to begin with. In other words, 48,000 of the bank's 60,000 employees did nothing useful, or nothing that couldn't easily be done by a machine. These were, Simon believed, de facto bullshit jobs, even if the bank workers themselves were deprived of the means to assess or collectively analyze the situation, and expected to keep any suspicions to themselves. But why didn't the bank's higher-ups figure this out and do something about it? Well, the easiest way to answer that question is to observe what happened when Simon did suggest reforms. Simon. In one instance, I created a program that solved a critical security problem. I went to present it to an executive, who included all his consultants in the meeting. There were 25 of them in the boardroom. The hostility I faced during and after the meeting was severe, as I slowly realized that my program automated everything they were currently being paid to do by hand. It's not as if they enjoyed it. It was tedious work, monotonous, and boring. The cost of my program was 5% of what they were paying those 25 people. But they were adamant. I found many similar problems and came up with solutions. But in all my time, not one of my recommendations was ever actioned. Because, in every case, fixing these problems would have resulted in people losing their jobs, as those jobs served no purpose other than giving the executive they reported to a sense of power. So even if these jobs didn't originate as flunky jobs, which presumably most didn't, 
they ended up being maintained as such. The threat of automation, of course, is an ongoing concern in any large enterprise. I've heard of companies where programmers will show up to work wearing T-shirts that say, Go away, or I will replace you with a very small shell script. But in this case, and many like it, the concern went to the very top, to the very executives who, if, for instance, they are involved in private equity in any way, pride themselves on the ruthlessness with which they acquired other corporations and saddled them with enormous debts in the name of downsizing and efficiency. These very same executives prided themselves on their own bloated staffs. In fact, if Simon is also correct, they did so because that's what a large bank really was. It was made up of a series of feudal retinues, each answerable to some lordly executive. Another reason sometimes cited for the multiplication of unnecessary levels of executives or administrative staff is protection from the threat of lawsuits. Here's the account of one bank employee, Aaron. It's common to now see chief of staff roles in large financial institutions. They are simply an ineffectual buffer between senior managers and any potential litigation from regulators or disgruntled employees. This buffer never works because, in litigation, the plaintiff will always name the senior manager in the court papers, as this maximizes the likelihood the case gets settled to avoid embarrassment. So, what do the chiefs of staff end up doing? Well, they tend to organize meetings with senior managers and their leadership teams and commission lots of pointless management consultant surveys to try and work out why morale is so low. A question that could be answered much more easily by simply asking employees what they think. You often see them organizing charity days and puff pieces in newspapers or journals. According to Aaron, HR staff are now less likely to fulfill such roles as they too fear legal liability. Clearly, the situation varies in different banks. On some ways in which the current form of managerial feudalism resembles classic feudalism, and other ways in which it does not. The upper quintile is growing in size and income because all the value created by actual productive workers in the lower quintiles gets extracted by those at the top. When the top classes rob everybody else, they need a lot more guard labor to keep their stolen loot secure. Kevin Carson If we return to the example of the feudal overlord in Chapter 2, this actually makes perfect sense. I was using feudal overlords and retainers as a metaphor at that point. But in the case of banks, at least, it's not clear how much is metaphor and how much is literal truth. As I pointed out, feudalism is essentially a redistributive system. Peasants and craftsmen produce things, to a large extent autonomously. Lords siphon off a share of what they produce, usually by dent of some complex set of legal rights and traditions. Direct geopolitical extraction is the technical phrase I learned in college. It's probably relevant, admittedly, that the economics department in my college was entirely dominated by Marxists. The phrase goes back at least to Perry Anderson in 1974. And then go about portioning out shares of the loot to their own staff, flunkies, warriors, retainers, and to a lesser extent, by sponsoring feasts and festivals and by occasional gifts and favors, giving some of it back to the craftsmen and peasants once again. In such an arrangement, it makes little sense to speak of separate spheres of politics and the economy because the goods are extracted through political means and distributed for political purposes. 
In fact, it was only with the first stirrings of industrial capitalism that anyone started talking about the economy as an autonomous sphere of human activity in the first place. Under capitalism, in the classic sense of the term, profits derive from the management of production. Capitalists hire people to make or build or fix or maintain things, and they cannot take home a profit unless their total overhead, including the money they pay their workers and contractors, comes out less than the value of the income they receive from their clients or customers. Under classic capitalist conditions of this sort, it does indeed make no sense to hire unnecessary workers. Maximizing profits means paying the least number of workers the least amount of money possible. In a very competitive market, those who hire unnecessary workers are not likely to survive. Of course, this is why doctrinaire libertarians, or for that matter, orthodox Marxists, will always insist that our economy can't really be riddled with bullshit jobs, that all this must be some sort of illusion. But by a feudal logic, where economic and political considerations overlap, the same behavior makes perfect sense. As with the PPI distributors, the whole point is to grab a pot of loot, either by stealing it from one's enemies or extracting it from commoners by means of fees, tolls, rents, and levies, and then redistributing it. In the process, one creates an entourage of followers that is both the visible measure of one's pomp and magnificence, and at the same time, a means of distributing political favor. For instance, by buying off potential malcontents, rewarding faithful allies, goons, or creating an elaborate hierarchy of honors and titles for lower-ranking nobles to squabble over. If all of this very much resembles the inner workings of a large corporation, I would suggest that this is no coincidence. Such corporations are less and less about making, building, fixing, or maintaining things, and more and more about political processes of appropriating, distributing, and allocating money and resources. This means that, once again, it's increasingly difficult to distinguish politics and economics, as we have seen with the advent of too-big-to-fail banks, whose lobbyists typically write the very laws by which government supposedly regulates them, but, even more, by the fact that financial profits themselves are gathered largely through direct juro-political means. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., for example, the largest bank in America, reported in 2006 that roughly two-thirds of its profits were derived from fees and penalties, and finance, in general, really refers to trading in other people's debts. Debts which, of course, are enforceable in courts of law. Much of this argument and several of the examples are taken from the first chapters of Graeber, Utopia of Rules. It's almost impossible to get accurate figures about exactly what proportion of a typical family's income in, say, America or Denmark or Japan, is extracted each month by the fire sector. But there is every reason to believe it is not only a very substantial chunk, but also is now a distinctly greater chunk in total profits than those the corporate sector derives directly from making or selling goods and services in those same countries. Even those firms we see as the very heart of the old industrial order, General Motors and General Electric in America, for example, now derive all or almost all of their profits from their own financial divisions. GM, for example, makes its money not from selling cars, but rather from interest collected on auto loans. 
Still, there's one crucial difference between medieval feudalism and the current financialized version. We've already mentioned it earlier in the chapter. Medieval feudalism was based on a principle of self-governance in the domain of production. Anyone whose work was based on some kind of specialized knowledge, whether lace makers, wheelwrights, merchants, legal scholars, was expected to collectively regulate their own affairs, or including who would be allowed to enter the profession and how they would be trained, with minimal supervision from anybody else. Guilds and similar organizations typically had elaborate hierarchies within, though not always so much as they do today. In many medieval universities, for instance, students elected their professors. But, at the very least, a medieval swordsmith or soapmaker could go about his work in the confidence that he would never have anyone who is not himself a swordsmith or a soapmaker telling him he was not going about it correctly. Industrialized capitalism obviously changed all that, and the rise of managerialism in the 20th century drove the process even further. But rather than this in any sense reversing under financialized capitalism, the situation has actually worsened. Efficiency has come to mean vesting more and more power to managers, supervisors, and other presumed efficiency experts so that actual producers have almost zero autonomy. At the same time, the ranks and orders of managers seem to reproduce themselves endlessly. Of course, this is not the way things are represented, and naturally, in any branch of industry defined as creative, whether software development or graphic design, production is typically outsourced to small groups, the celebrated Silicon Valley startups, or individuals, casualized independent contractors, who do work autonomously. But such people are often largely uncompensated. If one wants a parable for what seems to have happened to capitalism over the last 40-odd years, perhaps the best example I know is the Elephant Tea Factory outside Marseille, France, currently occupied by its employees. I visited the plant a few years ago, and one of the occupiers, who took me and some friends on a tour of the grounds, told us the story of what happened. Originally, it was a local enterprise, but during the age of mergers and acquisitions, the company was bought up by Unilever, owner of Lipton, the world's largest tea producer. At first, the company left the organization of the plant more or less alone. The workers, however, were in the habit of tinkering with the machinery, and by the 90s, they had introduced a series of improvements that sped up production by more than 50%, thus markedly increasing profits. Now, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a tacit understanding in much of the industrialized world that if productivity in a certain enterprise improved, a certain share of the increased profits would be redistributed to the workers in the form of improved wages and benefits. Since the 80s, this is no longer the case. So here. Did they give any of that money to us? Our guide asked. No. Did they use it to hire more workers or new machinery to expand operations? No. They didn't do that either. So what did they do? they started hiring more and more white-collar workers. Originally, when I started working here, there were just two of them, the boss and the HR guy. It had been like that for years. Now suddenly, there were three, four, five, seven guys in suits wandering around. The company made up different fancy titles for them, but basically all of them spent their time trying to think of something to do. They'd be walking up and down the catwalks every day, 
staring at us, scribbling notes while we worked. Then they'd have meetings and discuss it and write reports. But they still couldn't figure out any real excuse for their existence. Then, finally, one of them hit on a solution. Why don't we just shut down the whole plant, fire the workers, and move operations to Poland? Generally speaking, extra managers are hired with the ostensible purpose of improving efficiency. But in this case, there was little to be improved. The workers themselves had boosted efficiency about as much as it was possible to do. But the managers were hired anyway. What this suggests is that what we are really dealing with here has nothing to do with efficiency, but everything to do with changing understandings of the moral responsibilities of corporations. From roughly 1945 to 1975, there was what is sometimes referred to as a Keynesian bargain between workers, employers, and government. And part of the tacit understanding was that increases in worker productivity would indeed be matched by increases in worker compensation. In the 1970s, the two began to part ways, with compensation remaining largely flat and productivity taking off like a rocket. My data is for the United States, but similar trends can be observed in virtually all industrialized countries. Where did the profits from this increased productivity go? Well, much of it, as we are often reminded, ended up swelling the fortunes of the wealthiest 1%. Investors, executives, and the upper echelons of the professional managerial classes. But if we take the elephant tea factory as a microcosm for the corporate world as a whole, it becomes obvious that wasn't all that happened. Another considerable chunk of the benefits of increased productivity went to creating entirely new and basically pointless professional managerial positions, usually, as we've seen in the case of universities, accompanied by small armies of equally pointless administrative staff. As we've seen so often, first the staff is allocated, and then someone has to figure out what, if anything, they will actually do. In other words, the feudal analogy is not even really an analogy. Managerialism has become the pretext for creating a new covert form of feudalism, where wealth and position are allocated not on economic, but political grounds. Or rather, where every day it's more difficult to tell the difference between what can be considered economic and what is political. Another classic feature of medieval feudalism is the creation of hierarchies of ranked nobles or officials. A European king might grant land to a baron in exchange for providing a certain number of knights to his army. The baron, in turn, would grant most of that land to some local vassal on the same basis, and so on. Such devolution would proceed through a process of sub-infudation down to local lords of the manor. This was the process by which the elaborate ranks of dukes, earls, viscounts, and so forth that still exist in places like England originally came into being. In India and China, matters were typically more indirect. The usual practice was to simply allocate the income from a certain territory or province to officials who were likely to actually live in the nearest city, but for our purposes here, the result is not so very different. Definitions of feudalism vary, from any economic system based on tribute-taking to the specific system prevalent in Northern Europe during the High Middle Ages, in which land was granted in exchange for military service in ostensibly voluntary relations of vassalage, a system which, outside Europe, is documented mainly in Japan. 
From this perspective, most other Asian empires and kingdoms operated with, as Weber called them, patrimonial prebendal systems, where lords or important officials collected the income from a certain territory but did not necessarily occupy or directly administer it, an approach European kings also later attempted to impose when they had the power. All this could be endlessly dissected, but here I really only want to make the point that in such systems, where there are people who are primary producers and others whose basic job it is to move things around, the latter almost invariably end up organized into very elaborate chains of command. The 19th century Ganda Kingdom in East Africa might seem a particularly telling example in this regard. All farming and most productive work was done by women. Most men, as a result, ended up part of an elaborate hierarchy of titled officials running from the village to the king or as flunkies or retainers to such officials. When too many idle men accumulated, rulers would start wars or sometimes simply round thousands up and massacre them. As a general principle, I would propose the following. In any political economic system based on appropriation and distribution of goods, rather than on actually making, moving, or maintaining them, and therefore where a substantial portion of the population is engaged in funneling resources up and down the system, that portion of the population will tend to organize itself into an elaborately ranked hierarchy of multiple tiers, at least three and sometimes ten, twelve, or even more. As a corollary, I would add that within those hierarchies, the line between retainers and subordinates will often become blurred, since obeisance to superiors is often a key part of the job description. Most of the important players are lords and vassals at the same time. How managerial feudalism manifests itself in the creative industries through an endless multiplication of intermediary executive ranks. Every dean needs his vice-dean and sub-dean, and each of them needs a management team, secretaries, admin staff. All of them only there to make it harder for us to teach, to research, to carry out the most basic functions of our jobs. Anonymous British Academic The rise of managerial feudalism has produced a similar infatuation with hierarchy for its own sake. We have already seen the phenomenon of managers whose job it is to manage other managers, or the elaborate mechanisms Irene described whereby banks set up a hierarchy of offices to endlessly rarefy what's ultimately an arbitrary and meaningless set of data. Often, this kind of managerial sub-infudation is a direct result of the unleashing of market forces. Recall here Kurt, with whom we began Chapter 1, who was working for a subcontractor to a subcontractor to a subcontractor to the German military. His position was the direct outcome of market reforms supposedly designed to make government more efficient. The same phenomenon can be observed in a dozen different fields. For instance, the multiplication of levels of managers whose basic job is to sell things to one another has come to dominate almost all creative industries. From books, where editors at academic presses in many cases don't even read half the books they are supposed to have edited, because they are expected to spend most of their time marketing things to other editors, to the visual arts, where recent decades have seen the rise of a whole new stratum of managerial intermediaries called curators, whose work, assembling the work of artists, is now often considered of equal value and importance to the art itself, 
to even journalism, where the relationship between editors and reporters has been complicated by an additional level of producers. One might argue that Marcel Duchamp, by placing a urinal in a gallery and declaring it a work of art, opened the door to the entry of managerialism into the arts. At any rate, he eventually became horrified by the door he'd opened up and spent the last decades of his life playing chess, which, he argued, was also one of the few things he could do that could not possibly be commodified. Film and television have fared particularly badly. At least, so it seems from testimonials within the industry. Where once the Hollywood studio system relied on a relatively simple relation between producers, directors, and writers, recent decades have witnessed an apparently endless process of managerial sub-infudation, resulting in a daunting array of producers, sub-producers, executive producers, consultants, and the like, all in constant search for something, anything, to actually do. Many suggest to me one reason for the dishwater mediocrity or even plain incoherence of so many contemporary movie scripts is that each of these supernumeraries will typically insist on changing at least a line or two, just to be able to say they had some influence on the final product. I first heard about this after seeing the endlessly terrible 2008 remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. The entire plot seemed to be designed to lead up to a moment of realization where the alien comes to understand the true nature of humanity, that they are not basically evil, just very bad at handling grief. Yet when the moment came, the alien never actually said this. I asked a friend in the industry how this could have happened, and he assured me that the line I was expecting was almost certainly in the original script. Some useless executives must have intervened to change it. You see, there are usually dozens of these guys hovering around any production, and every one of them will feel they have to jump in and change around at least one line. Or else, what's the excuse for their even being there? I received several testimonies from workers in TV development, that is, small companies in the business of coming up with programming ideas to pitch to larger ones. Here's an example that illustrates just how much the introduction of market elements within the process has changed things. Owen. I work in development. This part of the television industry has expanded exponentially in the last 20 years. TV used to be commissioned by one channel controller who would ask producers he liked to make whatever shows they wanted. There was no development. There was just making the show. Now every company in TV, and film too, has its own development team, staffed by three to ten people, and there are more and more commissioners whose job it is to listen to their pitches. None of these people make TV shows. I have not gotten a show sold for four years. Not because we are particularly bad, but because of nepotism and politics. That's four years that have amounted to precisely nothing. I could have sat with my thumb up my arse for four years and nothing would be any different. Or I could have been making films. I would say the average development team gets one show commissioned every three to four months. It's bullshit through and through. Such complaints are similar to what one regularly hears in academia. It's not just the senselessness of the process that rankles, but, as with all box-taking rituals, the fact that one ends up spending so much more time pitching, assessing, monitoring, and arguing about what one does than one spends actually doing it. 
In film, television, and even radio, the situation becomes even more distressing because, owing to internal marketization of the industry, a substantial chunk of those who work in it spend their time working on shows that do not and will never exist. Apollonia, for instance, did a stint for a development team pitching ideas for reality TV shows with titles such as Snipped, where men voted too promiscuous by the audience underwent a vasectomy live on the air, Transsexual Housewives, and this was a real title, Too Fat to Fuck. All were cast and promoted, even though not one was ever produced. Apollonia. What would happen is we would come up with ideas together and then sell them to networks, which involves sourcing the talent, building a sizzle video, a 30-second promo for something that doesn't exist yet, and then shopping that sizzle around to try and sell it to a network. While I was there, we didn't sell any shows, presumably because my boss was an idiot. Apollonia did all the work, so that the vice president and the senior vice president, who were the only other members of her team, could helicopter around the city meeting other vice presidents and senior vice presidents for lunch, and generally acting like high-powered media executives. During the time she worked there, the result of such efforts was precisely zero. How did this happen? And what happens when an idea is accepted? One current Hollywood scriptwriter was kind enough to send me his insider's analysis of what went wrong and how things now play out. Oscar In the golden age of Hollywood, from the 1920s to the 1950s, studios were vertical operations. They were also companies headed by one man who took all the decisions and who banked his own money. They were not yet owned by conglomerates, and they had no board of directors. These studio heads were far from intellectuals or artists, but they had gut instincts, took risks, and had an innate sense about what made a movie work. Instead of armies of executives, they would actually hire armies of writers for their story department. Those writers were on the payroll, supervised by the producers, and everything was in-house. Actors, directors, set designers, actual film stages, etc. Starting in the 60s, he continues, this system came under attack as vulgar, tyrannical, and stifling of artistic talent. For a while, the resulting ferment did allow some innovative visions to shine through, but the ultimate result was a corporatization far more stifling than anything that had come before. Oscar There were openings in the 60s and 70s. New Hollywood, Beatty, Scorsese, Coppola, Stone, as the film industry was in complete chaos at the time. Then, in the 1980s, corporate monopolies took over studios. It was a big deal, and I think a sign of things to come, when Coca-Cola purchased Columbia Pictures for a short while. From then on, movies wouldn't be made by those that liked them or even watched them. Clearly, this ties in with the advent of neoliberalism and a larger shift in society. The system that eventually emerged was suffused with bullshit on every level. The process of development, development hell, as writers prefer to call it, now ensures that each script has to pass through not just one, but usually a half-dozen clone-like executives with titles such as Oscar Lissom, Managing Director of International Content and Talent, Executive Managing Director, 
Executive Vice President for Development, and my favorite, Executive Creative Vice President for Television. Most are armed with MBAs in marketing and finance, but know almost nothing about the history or technicalities of film or TV. Their professional lives, like that of Apollonia's boss, seem to consist almost entirely of writing emails and having ostensibly high-powered lunches with other executives bearing equally elaborate titles. As a result, what was once the fairly straightforward business of pitching and selling a script idea descends into a labyrinthine game of self-marketing that can go on for years before a project is finally approved. It's important to emphasize that this happens not just when an independent writer tries to sell a script idea to a studio on spec, but even in-house for writers already inside a studio or production company. Oscar is obliged to work with an incubator, who plays a role roughly equivalent to that of a literary agent, helping him prepare script proposals that the incubator will then pass to his own network of top executives, either within or outside the company. His example is of another television show, though he emphasizes the process is exactly the same for movies. Oscar. So, I develop a series project with this incubator, writing a Bible, a 60-page document that details the project's concept, characters, episodes, plots, themes, etc. Once that's done, comes the carnival of pitching. The incubator and I propose the project to a slew of broadcasters, financing funds, and production companies. These people are purportedly at the top of the food chain. You could spend months in the vacuum of communications with them, emails unanswered, and so on. Phone calls are considered pushy, if not borderline harassment. Their jobs are to read and seek out projects. Yet they couldn't be more unreachable if they worked from a shack in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Pitching is a strategic ballet. There is a ritual delay of at least a week between each communication. After a month or two, however, one executive might take enough of an interest to agree to a face-to-face meeting. Oscar. In the meetings, they ask you to pitch them the project all over again, although they're supposed to have already read it. Once that's done, they usually ask you pre-written, one-size-fits-all questions filled with buzzwords. It's always very non-committal, and without exception, they tell you about all the other executives that would need to approve the project in case it would be decided to move forward. Then you go, and they forget about you. And you have to follow up, and the loop begins anew. In fact, an executive will seldom tell you yes or no. If he says yes, and then the project goes nowhere, or else gets made in bombs, it's his responsibility. If he says no, and then it succeeds somewhere else, he will get blamed for the oversight. Above all, the executive loathes taking responsibility. The game, then, is to keep the ball in the air as long as possible. Just to option an idea, which involves a mere token payment, typically requires approval from three other branches of the company. Once the option papers are signed, a new process of stalling begins. Oscar They will tell me the document they optioned is too long to send around. They need a shorter pitch document. Or suddenly they also want some changes to the concept. So we have a meeting. We talk it over, brainstorm. A lot of this process is just them justifying their jobs. 
Everybody in the room will have a different opinion just for the sake of having a reason to be there. It's a cacophony of ideas, and they talk in the loosest, most conceptual terms possible. They pride themselves on being savvy marketers and incisive thinkers, but it's all generalities. The executive loves to talk in metaphors, and he loves to expose his theories about how the audience thinks, what it wants, how it reacts to storytelling. Most fancy themselves corporatized Joseph Campbells, with no doubt here again an influence from the corporate philosophies of Google, Facebook, and other such behemoths. Or they'll say, I'm not saying you should do X, but maybe you should do X. Both tell you to do something and not to do it at the same time. The more you press for details, the blurrier it gets. I try to decipher their gibberish and tell them what I think they mean. Joseph Campbell was an historian of religion whose book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, argued that all hero myths have the same basic plot. The book was an enormous influence on George Lucas in developing the plots for the original Star Wars trilogy. While Campbell's argument for a universal archetypal hero narrative is now considered at best something of an entertaining curio by scholars of epic or heroic myth, the analysis he offers probably would be valid now for Hollywood movies, since almost all screenwriters and producers are familiar with the book and attempt to use it in designing plots. Alternatively, the executive will totally, wholeheartedly agree with everything the writer proposes. Then, as soon as the meeting is over, he'll send out an email instructing her to do the opposite. Or wait a few weeks and inform her the entire project must be reconceived. After all, if all he did was shake the writer's hand and allow her to get to work, there'd be little point of having an executive creative vice president to begin with, let alone five or six of them. In other words, film and TV production is now not all that entirely different from the accountancy company's mistraining employees to stall the distribution of PPI payments, or Dickinson's case of jarndice and jarndice. The longer the process takes, the greater the excuse for the endless multiplication of intermediary positions and the more money is siphoned off before it has any chance to get to those doing the actual work. Oscar. And all this for a, now, 15-page document. Now, extrapolate that to more people, a script, a director, producers, even more executives, the shoot, the edit, and you have a picture of the insanity of the industry. At this point, we are entering into what might be termed the airy reaches of the bullshit economy, and therefore that part least accessible to study. We cannot know what executive creative vice presidents are really thinking. Even those who are secretly convinced their jobs are pointless, and for all we know, that's pretty much all of them, are unlikely to admit this to an anthropologist. So, one can only guess. But the effects of their actions can be observed every time we go to the cinema. There's a reason, says Oscar, why movies and TV series to put it plainly, suck. The rule of finance has seen the insertion of competitive games of this sort at every level of corporate life, or, for that matter, within institutions such as universities or charities that had previously been seen as the very antithesis of corporations. Perhaps in some it hasn't reached that zenith of bullshit, which is Hollywood. But everywhere, managerial feudalism ensures that thousands of hours of creative effort will literally come to nothing. 
Take the domain of scientific research or higher education once again. If a grant agency funds only 10% of all applications, that means that 90% of the work that went into preparing applications was just as pointless as the work that went into making the promo video for Apollonia's doomed reality TV show Too Fat to Fuck. Even more so, really, since one can rarely make such an amusing anecdote out of it afterward. This is an extraordinary squandering of human creative energy. Just to give a sense of the scale of the problem, one recent study determined that European universities spend roughly 1.4 billion euros a year on failed grant applications. Money that, obviously, might otherwise have been available to fund research. Elsewhere, I have suggested that one of the main reasons for technological stagnation over the last several decades is that scientists, too, have to spend so much of their time vying with one another to convince potential donors they already know what they're going to discover. Finally, the endless internal meeting rituals where dynamic brand coordinators and East Coast vision managers for private corporations display their PowerPoint presentations, mind maps, and graphics-rich glossy reports are all essentially exercises in internal marketing as well. We've already seen how, internally, large numbers of ancillary bullshit jobs tend to cluster around such internal marketing rituals, such as those hired to prepare, edit, copy, or provide graphics for the presentations or reports. It seems to me all this is an intrinsic feature of managerial feudalism, where once universities, corporations, movie studios, and the like had been governed by a combination of relatively simple chains of command and informal patronage networks, we now have a world of funding proposals, strategic vision documents, and development team pitches, allowing for the endless elaborations of new and ever more pointless levels of managerial hierarchy, staffed by men and women with elaborate titles, fluent in corporate jargon, but who either have no first-hand experience of what it's like to actually do the work they are supposed to be managing, or who have done everything in their power to forget it. Conclusion, with a brief return to the question of three levels of causation. At this point, we can return to President Obama's remarks about health care reform and allow the pieces to fall together. The one million, two million, three million jobs that Obama was so concerned to preserve were created specifically by the very sorts of processes we have just been describing. The seemingly Endless accrual of layer upon layer of unnecessary administrative and managerial positions resulting from the aggressive application of market principles, in this case to the healthcare industry. It's a slightly different situation than most of those we've been looking at, since the U.S. healthcare system, almost uniquely among those of wealthy countries, was always mainly private. Despite this, even more so after Obama actually, it shows the exact same entanglement of public and private, economic and political, and the same role of government in guaranteeing private profits, as one is beginning to see in Canada or Europe with the partial privatization of national health systems. In every case, and in this case of U.S. healthcare reform, this was done quite self-consciously, ensuring that at least some of those profits are redistributed to creating well-paid, prestigious, but ultimately bullshit office jobs. I began the chapter by speaking of different levels of causality. 
The reasons why individuals create or accept bullshit jobs are by no means the same as the reasons why such jobs will tend to proliferate in certain times and places rather than others. The deeper structural forces that drive such historical changes in turn are not the same as the cultural and political factors that determine how the public and politicians react to them. This chapter has been largely about structural forces. No doubt bullshit jobs have long been with us, but recent years have seen an enormous proliferation of such pointless forms of employment, accompanied by an ever-increasing bullshitization of real jobs. And despite a popular misconception that all this is somehow tied to the rise of the service sector, this proliferation appears to have everything to do with the growing importance of finance. Corporate capitalism, that is, that form of capitalism in which production is largely carried out within large, bureaucratically organized firms, first emerged in America and Germany in the late 19th century. During most of the 20th century, large industrial corporations were very much independent of, and to some degree even hostile to, the interests of what was called high finance. Executives and firms dedicated to producing breakfast cereals or agricultural machinery saw themselves as having far more in common with production line workers in their own firms than they did with speculators and investors, and the internal organization of firms reflected this. It was only in the 1970s that the financial sector and the executive classes, that is, the upper echelons of the various corporate bureaucracies, effectively fused. CEOs began paying themselves in stock options, moving back and forth between utterly unrelated companies, priding themselves on the number of employees they could lay off. This set off a vicious cycle whereby workers, who no longer felt any loyalty to corporations that felt none toward them, had to be increasingly monitored, managed, and surveilled. On a deeper level, this realignment set off a whole series of trends that had enormous implications on virtually everything that was to follow, from changes in political sensibilities to changes in directions of technological research. To take just one particularly revealing example, back in the 1970s, banks were still the only companies that were enthusiastic about the use of computers. There seems to be an intrinsic connection between the financialization of the economy, the blossoming of information industries, and the proliferation of bullshit jobs. The results were not just some sort of recalibration or readjustment of existing forms of capitalism. In many ways, it marked a profound break with what had come before. If the existence of bullshit jobs seems to defy the logic of capitalism, one possible reason for their proliferation might be that the existing system isn't capitalism. Or, at least, isn't any sort of capitalism that would be recognizable from the works of Adam Smith, Karl Marx, or, for that matter, Ludwig von Mises or Milton Friedman. It is increasingly a system of rent extraction where the internal logic the system's laws of motion, as the Marxists like to say, are profoundly different from capitalism, since economic and political imperatives have come to largely merge. In many ways, it resembles classic medieval feudalism, displaying the same tendency to create endless hierarchies of lords, vassals, and retainers. In other ways, notably in its 
managerialist ethos, it is profoundly different. And the whole apparatus, rather than replacing old-fashioned industrial capitalism, is instead superimposed on top of it, blending together in a thousand points in a thousand different ways. Hardly surprising, then, that the situation seems so confusing that even those directly in the middle don't really know quite what to make of it. This was the structural level. In the next two chapters, I will turn to the cultural and political level. Here, of course, it is impossible to be neutral. Even to ask why it is that the existence of forms of pointless employment is not seen as a great social problem is to at least suggest that it really ought to be. Clearly, the original essay acted as a kind of catalyst in this regard. It seized on a broadly existing feeling that had not really found any other voice outside the corridors, a sense that something was very wrong with the organization of society, and it provided a series of frameworks for how one might begin to think about those issues in political terms. In what follows, I will expand on those suggestions and think a little more systematically about what the larger political implications of the current division of labor actually are and what might be done about the situation. Chapter 6 Why do we as a society not object to the growth of pointless employment? How vain the opinion is of some certain people of the East Indies, who think that apes and baboons, which are with them in great numbers, are imbued with understanding, and that they can speak but will not, for fear they should be employed and set to work. Antoine Legrand, circa 1675. We have already considered the economic and social forces that have led to the proliferation of bullshit jobs, as well as the misery and distress those jobs cause for those who have to do them. Yet despite this evident and widespread distress, the fact that millions of people show up to work every day, convinced they are doing absolutely nothing, has not, until now, been considered a social problem. We have not seen politicians denouncing bullshit jobs, academic conferences dedicated to understanding the reasons for the rise of bullshit jobs, opinion pieces debating the cultural consequences of bullshit jobs, or protest movements campaigning to abolish them. To the contrary, if politicians, academics, editorialists, or social movements do weigh in on the matter, it's usually by acting directly or indirectly to make the problem worse. The situation seems all the more extraordinary when we consider the larger social consequences of this proliferation. If it's really true that as much as half the work we do could be eliminated without any significant effect on overall productivity, why not just redistribute the remaining work in such a way that everyone is working four-hour days, or four-day weeks with four months' yearly vacation time, or some similarly easygoing arrangement? Why not start shutting down the global work machine? If nothing else, it would probably be the most effective thing we could do to put a break on global warming. A hundred years ago, many assumed that the steady advance of technology and labor-saving devices would have made this possible by now. And the irony is that they were probably right. We could easily all be putting in a 20 or even 15-hour work week. Yet for some reason, we as a society have collectively decided it's better to have millions of human beings spending years of their lives pretending to type into spreadsheets or preparing mind maps for PR meetings 
then freeing them to knit sweaters, play with their dogs, start a garage band, experiment with new recipes, or sit in cafes arguing about politics and gossiping about their friends' complex polyamorous love affairs. I think the easiest way to understand how this happened is to consider how difficult it is to imagine an opinion writer for a major newspaper or magazine writing a piece saying that some class of people is working too hard and might do well to cut it out. It's easy enough to find pieces complaining that certain classes of people, young people, poor people, recipients of various forms of public assistance, those of certain national or ethnic groups, are work-shy, entitled, lacking in drive or motivation, or unwilling to earn a living. The Internet is littered with them. For instance, at the height of the Greek debt crisis, public opinion in Germany was almost unanimous that Greek debt should not be forgiven because Greek workers were entitled and lazy. This was countered by statistics showing Greek workers actually put in longer hours than German ones, which in turn was countered by the argument that this might be true on paper, but Greek workers slacked off on the job. At no point did anyone suggest that German workers were working too hard, creating an overproduction problem that could only be solved by lending foreign countries money to be able to import their goods, let alone that the Greek ability to enjoy life was in any way admirable or a model for others. To take another example, when in the 1990s the French Socialist Party ran on the platform of a 35-hour workweek, I remember being struck by the fact that no American news source I was able to find that deigned to mention this fact, suggested that reducing working hours might be seen as, let alone be, good in itself, but only presented it as a tactic for reducing unemployment. In other words, allowing people to work less could only be treated as a social good if it allowed more people to be working. As Rachel put it in Chapter 4, I can barely scroll through Facebook without hitting some preachy think piece about my generation's entitlement and reluctance to just do a bloody day's work. Whenever there's a crisis, even an ecological crisis, there are calls for collective sacrifice. These calls always seem to involve everyone working more, despite the fact that, as noted, in ecological terms, a mass reduction of working hours is probably the quickest and easiest thing that could be done to save the planet. Opinion writers are the moralists of our day. They are the secular equivalent of preachers, and when they write about work, their arguments reflect a very long theological tradition of valorizing work as a sacred duty, at once curse and blessing, and seeing humans as inherently sinful, lazy beings who can be expected to shirk that duty if they can. The discipline of economics itself emerged out of moral philosophy. Adam Smith was a professor of moral philosophy, and moral philosophy in turn was originally a branch of theology. Many economic concepts trace back directly to religious ideas. As a result, arguments about value always have something of a theological tinge. Some originally theological notions about work are so universally accepted that they simply can't be questioned. One cannot assert that hard-working people are not, generally speaking, admirable, regardless of what they might be working hard at, or that those who avoid work are not in any way contemptible and expect to be taken seriously in public debate. If someone says a policy creates jobs, it is not considered acceptable to reply that some jobs aren't worth having. 
I know this because I have occasionally done so to policy wonks, partly just to observe the shocked confusion that ensues. Say any of these things, and anything else you might say will be written off as well as the effusions of a provocateur, a comedian, a lunatic. Anyway, someone whose further arguments can now be automatically dismissed. Still, while the voice of the moralists may be sufficient to convince us not to make a scandal of the proliferation of bullshit jobs, since in public debate all work must be treated as sacred duty and therefore any work is always preferable to none at all, when it comes to our own jobs, we tend to apply very different criteria. We expect a job to serve some purpose or have some meaning and are deeply demoralized if we find it does not. But this leads to another question. If work is not simply a value in itself, in what way is it a value to others? After all, when people say their jobs are worthless or no good to anyone, they are making arguments about value. Of what sort? The field of value is always contested territory. It seems that whenever there's a word for something everyone agrees to be desirable, truth, beauty, love, democracy, then there will be no consensus as to what it really means. Oddly enough, this is even true of money. Economists are divided over what it is. But in our own society, arguments about the value of work are particularly important to consider because they have led to what any outside observer would have to describe as weird, topsy-turvy effects. As we'll see, people do have a notion of the social value of their work. But our society has reached the point where not only is the social value of work usually in inverse proportion to its economic value, the more one's work benefits others, the less one is likely to be paid for it, but many people have come to accept this situation is morally right. They genuinely believe this is how things ought to be. That we should reward useless or even destructive behavior and effectively punish those whose daily labors make the world a better place. This is genuinely perverse. To understand how it happened, though, will require a bit of work on our own part. On the impossibility of developing an absolute measure of value. When someone describes his job as pointless or worthless, he is necessarily operating within some sort of tacit theory of value, an idea of what would be a worthwhile occupation and therefore what is not. It is notoriously difficult, however, to tease out exactly what that theory is in any given instance, let alone to come up with any reliable system of measurement that would make it possible to say that Job X is more valuable or useful to society than job Y. Economists measure value in terms of what they call utility, the degree to which a good or service is useful in satisfying a want or need, and many apply something like this to their own jobs. Technically, the measure is marginal utility, the degree to which the consumer finds an additional unit of the good useful in this way. Hence, if one already has three bars of soap stockpiled in one's house, or for that matter, three houses, how much additional utility is added by a fourth? Do I provide something useful to the public? Sometimes the answer to the question is self-evident. If one is building a bridge, one considers it a worthwhile task if one anticipates that other people who wish to get across the river will find it useful. 
If workers are building a bridge no one is ever likely to use, such as the famous Bridges to Nowhere that local politicians in the United States will occasionally sponsor to direct federal money to their districts, they are likely to conclude they are engaged in a bullshit job. Still, there's an obvious problem with the concept of utility. Saying that something is useful is just saying it's effective as a way of getting something else. If you buy a dress, the utility of that dress is partly that it protects you from the elements or ensures you don't violate laws against walking down the street naked, but it's largely the degree to which it makes you look or feel nice. So, why would one dress achieve that and not another? Economists will usually say this is a matter of taste and therefore not their department. But any utility ultimately ends up in this kind of subjective problem if you push it back far enough, even something so relatively uncomplicated as a bridge. Yes, it can make it easier for people to get to the other side of a river. But why do they want to do that? To visit an aging relative? To go bowling? Even if it's just to shop for groceries? One does not buy groceries simply to maintain one's physical health. One also expresses one's personal taste, maintains an ethnic or family tradition, acquires the means to throw drinking parties with one's friends or to celebrate religious holidays. We can't really discuss any of these things in terms of a language of needs. For much of human history, and this is still true in much of the world today, when poor people end up in crippling debt to local moneylenders, it's because they felt they had to borrow money to throw proper funerals for their parents or weddings for their children. Did they need to do this? Clearly, they felt strongly that they did. And since there's no scientific definition of what a human need actually is, beyond the body's minimal caloric and nutritional requirements, and a few other physical factors, such questions must always be subjective. To a large degree, needs are just other people's expectations. If you don't throw a proper wedding for your daughter, it would be a family disgrace. Most economists conclude, therefore, that there's no point in sitting in judgment about what people should want. Better to just accept that they do want, and then sit in judgment about how effectively, rationally, they set about pursuing their desires. Most workers seem to agree. As I've noted, those who felt their jobs were pointless almost never said things such as, I produce selfie sticks. Selfie sticks are stupid. People shouldn't buy stupid things like that. Or, who really needs a $200 pair of socks? Even the one or two exceptions were revealing. Take Dietrich, who worked for a company that provided party supplies, mostly to local churches. Dietrich. I worked for years in the warehouse of a novelty store. I don't really know what to say other than it was complete and total BS. One doesn't know true degradation until one has spent a good portion of one's waking hours schlepping around boxes of clown noses, sneezing powders, plastic champagne flutes, cardboard cutouts of basketball players, and all other manner of other pointless knickknacks and nonsense. Most of the time we just sat in the back of the warehouse with little to nothing to do, musing on the total irrelevance of what we were doing year after year, as the business proved more and more unsustainable. To add insult to injury, our paychecks were bright red and had clown faces on them, much to the amusement of bank tellers everywhere. 
as if their jobs were any more meaningful. One might speculate at length about why Dietrich found this particular collection of products so offensive. What's wrong with a little silly fun? My guess would be because it wasn't Dietrich who decided he was working for purveyors of ephemeral junk. These products never claimed to be anything other than ephemeral junk, anti-utilities designed only to be thrown away, mockeries of real objects and real values. Even the money was a joke. Even more, novelty items do not reject real values in the name of anything in particular. They provide no actual challenge to what they claim to be making fun of. So one could say they aren't even genuine mockery. They're a mockery of a mockery, reduced to something with so little real subversive content that they can be embraced by even the most boring and stodgy members of society for the sake of the children. There's little more depressing than enforced gaiety. Still, even testimonies such as Dietrich's were rare. In most cases, when employees assessed the social value of their work, they appealed to some variant of the position presented by Tom, the special effects artist we met in Chapter 2. I consider a worthwhile job to be one that fulfills a pre-existing need, or even that creates a product or service that people hadn't thought of that somehow enhances and improves their lives. As opposed to, in Tom's case, his beauty work, which involved manipulating images of celebrities so as to make audiences feel unattractive and then selling them cures that didn't really work. Telemarketers sometimes expressed similar concerns, but again, much of what they were doing was simple fraud. You don't really need an elaborate theory of social value to tell you why cajoling retirees into buying subscriptions they can't afford to magazines they'll never read is problematic. Very few sat in judgment on their customers' tastes and preferences. It was more the aggressiveness and dishonesty of their own interventions that they felt proved they provided nothing of real value. Other objections appealed to much older traditions of social critique. Take Rupert, the bank employee, who asserted that the entire banking sector adds no value and is therefore bullshit, since finance was really just a matter of appropriating labor through usury. The labor theory of value he's referencing here, which traces back at least to the European Middle Ages, starts from the assumption that the real value of a commodity is the work that has been invested in making its existence possible. So, when we give money in exchange for a loaf of bread, what we are really paying for is the human effort that went into growing the wheat, baking the bread, and packing and transporting the loaves. If some loaves of bread are more expensive than others, it's either because it took more work to produce and transport them, or, alternately, because we consider some of that work to itself be of higher quality, to involve more skill, more artistry, more effort than others, and therefore are willing to pay more for the resulting product. Similarly, if you're defrauding others of their wealth, as Rupert felt he was doing working for an international investment bank, you're really stealing the real productive work that went into creating that wealth. Now, of course, there's a long history of using arguments like this to challenge arrangements where some are, or at least can be said to be, living off the backs of others. But the very existence of bullshit jobs raises certain problems for any labor theory of value. True, saying all value comes from work is obviously not the same thing as saying that all work produces value.
And I should note, just for the sake of clarity, that most of those who embrace the labor theory of value do not make this argument. Some value comes from nature, as Marx himself, the most famous advocate of the labor theory of value, did occasionally point out. Rupert felt that most bank employees were in no sense idling about. Actually, he felt most worked quite hard. Only all their labor was ultimately accomplishing, in his estimation, was to come up with clever ways to appropriate the fruits of the real labor done by others. But that still leaves us with the same problem of how to distinguish real value-creating work from its opposite. If giving someone a haircut is providing a valuable service, why is providing advice on their investment portfolio not? Yet Rupert's feelings were not unusual. He might have been unusual in framing them explicitly in terms of the labor theory of value, but he was expressing an uneasiness that many of those working in finance and related fields clearly do feel. Presumably, he had to turn to such theories because mainstream economics just didn't give him much to work with. According to the prevailing view among contemporary economists, since value is ultimately subjective, there's simply no way to justify such feelings. Everyone should therefore withhold judgment and operate on the assumption that if there's a market for a given good or service, and in this they would include financial services, then it's clearly valuable to someone, and that's all one needs to know. Up to a point, as we've seen, most workers would really appear to agree with the economists on principle, at least when it comes to the tastes and proclivities of the general public. But when it comes to their own jobs, their experience often glaringly contradicts the idea that the market can always be trusted in such matters. After all, there's a market in labor as well. If the market were always right, then someone being paid $40,000 to play computer games and gossip with old friends on WhatsApp all day would have to accept that the service he provides for the company by playing computer games and gossiping was actually worth $40,000. It clearly is not. So markets can't always be right. It follows that if the market can get things so wrong in the one area the worker knows best, then surely she cannot just blandly assume the market can be trusted to assess the true value of goods and services in those areas where she lacks firsthand information. Anyone who has a bullshit job or knows someone who has a bullshit job is aware then that the market is not an infallible arbiter of value. The problem is that nothing else is either. Questions of value are always at least a little murky. Most people would agree that some companies might just as well not exist, but it's more likely to be based on some kind of gut instinct than anything they can articulate precisely. If I had to tease out the prevailing, unstated common sense for a first pass anyway, I would say that most people seem to operate with a combination of Tom's and Rupert's positions. That when a good or service answers a demand or otherwise improves people's lives, then it can be considered genuinely valuable. But when it merely serves to create demand, either by making people feel they are fat and ugly or luring them into debt and then charging interest, it is not. This seems reasonable enough. But it still doesn't answer the question of what it means to improve people's lives, and on that, of course, rests everything. How most people in contemporary society do accept the notion of a social value that can be distinguished from economic value, 
even if it is very difficult to pin down what it is. So we are back again to theories of value. What can actually be said to improve people's lives? In economics, theories of value have largely served as a way to explain commodity prices. The price of a loaf of bread will fluctuate according to the contingencies of supply and demand, but that price will always gravitate around some kind of center that seems the natural price a loaf of bread should have. In the Middle Ages, this was seen explicitly as a moral question. How can one determine the just price of a commodity? If a merchant raised prices during wartime, at what point was he paying himself legitimate hazard pay, and at what point was he just gouging? One popular example, invoked by jurists at the time, was a prisoner living on bread and water who traded his fortune to another prisoner for a boiled egg. Could this really be considered a free choice? Should such a contract be considered enforceable once both prisoners were released? So the idea that the market can undervalue or overvalue things has been with us for a very long time. It's still an inherent part of our common sense. Otherwise, it would be impossible for anyone to ever say they were ripped off or got an especially good deal, even if no one has ever managed to come up with a reliable formula to calculate exactly what the real value of any given commodity should be and Therefore, just how badly one was ripped off or just how good a deal one really got. There are too many factors to take into consideration and many, sentimental value, individual, or subcultural taste, clearly can't be quantified. If anything is surprising, it's the dogged insistence of so many economists, amateur and otherwise, that it should be possible to do so. Many hold that all those other forms of value are somehow illusory or irrelevant to market concerns. Economists, for instance, will often take the position that, since value is ultimately just utility, commodity prices will gravitate around their real market value over time. Even if this comes down to a purely circular proposition that whatever price a commodity tends to gravitate around over time must be its real market value. Marxists and other anti-capitalists have often been known to take an even more extreme position, insisting that since capitalism is a total system, anyone who imagines she is operating outside it or pursuing values other than those created by the system is fooling herself. Often, when I present the concept of bullshit jobs in radical forums, someone awash in Marxist theory will instantly stand up to declare I have it wrong. Maybe some workers think their work is useless, but that work must be producing profits for capitalism, which is all that matters under the present capitalist system. Of course, this is exactly the position also taken by the most radical free market libertarians. Others, even more finely attuned to the niceties of such matters, will explain that clearly I'm really talking about the difference between what Marx terms productive and unproductive labor by which he meant labor that is either productive or unproductive for capitalists. Productive labor yields some kind of surplus value that capitalists can extract in profits. Other labor is at best reproductive, that is like housework or education. These are always put forward as the primary examples. Such tasks perform the necessary second-order work of keeping workers alive and raising new generations of workers so that in the future they can, in turn, do the real work of being exploited.
Since reproduction is technically the production of production, then maintaining the physical infrastructure or other elements exploited by capitalism would also count. It is certainly true that capitalists themselves will often see things in this way. Business lobbies, for instance, are notorious for urging governments to treat schools primarily as places for training future employees. It might seem a little strange seeing the same logic coming from anti-capitalists, but in a way, it makes sense. It's a means of saying that half-measures will never work. For instance, a well-meaning liberal who buys fair-trade coffee and sponsors a float in the gay pride parade isn't really challenging power structures of power and injustice in the world in any significant way, but ultimately, just reproducing them on another level. This is an important point to make. Sanctimonious liberals are irritating and deserve to be reminded of this. But the problem, at least for me, is the leap from saying that, from the perspective of capitalism, a mother's love or a teacher's labors have no meaning except as a means of reproducing the labor force, and the assumption that, therefore, any other perspective on the matter is necessarily irrelevant, illusory, or incorrect. Capitalism is not a single totalizing system that shapes and embraces every aspect of our existence. It's not even clear it makes sense to speak of capitalism at all. Marx, for instance, never really did, implying as it does that capitalism is a set of abstract ideas that have somehow come to take material form in factories and offices. The world is more complicated and messy than that. Historically, the factories and offices emerged first, long before anyone knew quite what to call them, and to this day, they operate on multiple contradictory logics and purposes. Similarly, value itself is a constant political argument. No one is ever quite sure what it is. In English, as currently spoken, we tend to make a distinction between value in the singular, as in the value of gold, pork bellies, antiques, and financial derivatives, and values in the plural, that is, family values, religious morality, political ideals, beauty, truth, integrity, and so on. Basically, we speak of value when talking about economic affairs, which usually comes down to all those human endeavors in which people are paid for their work or their actions are otherwise directed toward getting money. Values appear when that is not the case. For instance, Housework and childcare are surely the single most common forms of unpaid work. Hence, we constantly hear about the importance of family values. But participating in church activities, charitable works, political volunteering, and most artistic and scientific pursuits are equally unremunerated. Even if a sculptor does end up becoming fabulously wealthy and marries a porn star or a guru ends up in possession of a fleet of Rolls Royces, most will consider his wealth legitimate only insofar as it is a kind of side effect, because originally, at least, he wasn't in it just for the money. What money brings into the picture is the ability to make precise quantitative comparisons. Money makes it possible to say that this amount of pig iron is equivalent in value to that number of fruit drinks or pedicures or tickets to the Glastonbury Music Festival. This might sound obvious, but the implications are profound. It means the market value of a commodity is precisely 
the degree to which it can be compared to and hence exchanged for something else. This is exactly what is missing in the domain of values. It might sometimes be possible to argue that one work of art is more beautiful or one religious devotee more pious than another, but it would be bizarre to ask how much more to say that this monk is five times more pious than that one or this Rembrandt is twice as lovely as that Monet. It would be, if anything, even more absurd to try to come up with a mathematical formula to calculate just how much it would be legitimate to neglect one's family in pursuit of art or break the law in the name of social justice. Obviously, people do make such decisions all the time, but by definition, they cannot be quantified. Similarly, in the domain of values, when market comparisons can be made, they are assumed to be somehow incidental, not a reflection of the object's true worth. No one would actually insist that a Damien Hurst shark is worth, say, 200,000 V. 